represent students from K through 12, um, as well as uh, the collegiate teams, which are under US, USC, UCLA, and CSE Long Beach. Um, we do represent universities uh, that are part of Vegas as well. Um, well, Nevada uh, portion of it. So um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, a, quick, a quick background of myself. So um, I was an AIAA when I was uh, in school at University of Texas in Austin. Um, I graduated in 2016 and I moved out to California to start working at my first uh, company, Virgin Orbit. I was there for three years and now I'm at another startup called Relativity Space. And I've been here for almost two years. Um, during COVID, I realized that I just wanted to be a lot more active in um, just the realm of aerospace. I wanted to be able to give back to my community, be a leader and help um, like be a mentor and educator to collegiate students as well as um, just students in elementary school, middle school and high school. And I'm very, humbled and proud that AIAA has given me a platform to be able to share my knowledge, my resources, my networking to all these students. Um, so I unfortunately will not be able to stay for the whole time. I actually need to go to work. So I will turn this over to Ken, but um, if anyone has any questions, please reach out to me. Um, I, I believe Ken will be sending out my contact information and it's, it should already be on the flyer too. So. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm looking forward to hearing our students present. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, Kushbu. This uh, <clears throat> Kushbu is really passionate about uh, what she's doing, and uh, uh, really love to reach out to all of you and help all the students and educators. Uh, so please uh, uh, keep in touch with her. Uh, she's our representative liaison, you know, uh, mentor for for you all. So uh, please. You know, reach out to her. As I said, uh, she said that her email is on the uh, website, and uh, I will post it as well. Post it online as well. So, Kushbu, you see that Diana? She, you, you said you were awesome. Yeah. I did. Thanks, yeah, Diana. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm so proud of like our collegiate teams and like, the amount of events and stuff we have put together. Um, and seriously, like if any of our attendees, if y'all have any questions, if y'all um, have any suggestions on type of events you want to see from AIAA, please do reach out and let us know. We're always looking to hear back from our, um, our team just so we understand what kind of events we want and be able to resources <coughs> and make it happen. Yeah, you're right, and we are so lucky to have you. And, uh, Really appreciate that you see this LALVR is really, really fantastic. We have amazing, you know, people today, you know, as you see, and uh, uh, and so also a lot of you know people in this area, you know, waiting for you <laughs> to reach out to them. It's a, a, a great potential and a wonderful uh, people here. Really appreciate. We're so blessed to have you here with us. Thank you for the kind words. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So yeah, as uh, unfortunately she has to work today, but you know she's always there for you. So don't worry about it. Uh, so she's always uh, with you. So the, our first speaker today is uh, very inspiring, and uh, his talk is really fascinating. So really wish you know everybody here you know, who who is uh, every uh, um, you know passionate about you know aviation aerospace can uh, benefit from it. Uh, so there's Mr. Phil Barnes. <clears throat> And uh, let me make sure that he's spotlighted. Uh, let's see. Looks like he's, he's there. Okay. So um, <clears throat> yeah, Mr. Burns is uh, is with uh, uh, MSAE from Cal Poly Pomona and the 
Bachelor of Science in Molecular Engineering from the University of Arizona. Uh, he has authored AIAA, SAE, AAS, and ASME papers on diverse topics, including electric flight, uh, aerodynamics, uh, propellers, and uh, uh, <clears throat> mechanics or gears, uh, Kevlarian orbits, and dynamic soaring flight. Recently named Cal Poly Aero Engineering Alum of the Year, where he represented learning from the birds to graduates, families, and the faculty. Pio has given several invited travel paid lectures at universities, including USC, OSU, UIUC, and the University of Dayton. Um, Pio frequently mentors engineer students uh, with their capstone projects, and the fruits of such collaboration often appear in his technical papers and uh, uh, presentation. And just uh, remind everyone, actually, th uh, this uh, February, uh, we post one of his great articles about right flyers, you know, their analysis of aerodynamics. It's fascinating. Everybody loved that. You should look at it. It's on uh, ARWLV-LLV.org um, slash download. I'll send you a link. Please read it. It's fascinating. So uh, uh, without further ado, let's welcome uh, Phil. It's all yours. Hey, thank you, Dr. Louis. Um, <clears throat> let me go to uh, share the screen here. And share and function F5. Let's see. Slideshow. I always have a little bit of difficulty with Zoom. Let me try this. Okay, there we go. Do you see my title slide? Yes. Dr. You, okay, the title slide, title slide is up. Okay, aircraft energy gained from an atmosphere in motion. Excellent. Okay, very good. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to address this interest, uh, interested focused audience. Um, today's presentation is going to be a sort of an application of multidisciplinary engineering to study a phenomenon of the natural world and then try to apply that uh, in the human world. Uh, dynamic soaring and regenerative electric flight uh, are topics of great interest for the coming age of green flight. For both types of flight, the aircraft operates and or maneuvers intelligently to extract energy from an atmosphere which is itself in motion. Uh, today's study, drawing from several disciplines, learns from the birds and human visionaries, first to understand how the wandering albatross uses dynamic soaring to remain aloft indefinitely on shoulder-locked wings, and second, how a regenerative electric aircraft, depending on geography and weather, might fly an entire mission powered solely by atmospheric motion. Uh, before I go any further, Ken, when do I, I'm gonna watch very carefully my time because we have following speakers and I definitely will finish on time. When, when, ha, when do I have to finish this up? Uh, it's around 11, I'm sorry. Uh, let me see right now it's 10, I think around, uh, you have like 45 minutes. Okay, well, give me a warning. Give me a one minute warning when we get to that point, okay? Yeah, it's around 11, uh, sorry, 10, okay. 10.55. Okay, all right, the presentation we'll visit, uh, not necessarily in this order, uh, we'll visit uh, with various visionaries of uh, green flight. Um, we'll show actual uh, data for various types of atmospheric motion, updrafts, wind speeds, wind profiles, things of that nature. Uh, we'll do a, a little bit learning from the birds, um, <clears throat> we'll talk about the generalized performance uh, in steady state climbing, sinking, or turning flight. 
uh, introduced the aerodynamics of a so-called dual role propeller and airborne wind turbine or wind prop. And then we will move into electrical engineering with the motor, uh, the very ba basic principles of a permanent magnet uh, uh, brushless DC machine and its power conditioning, which is a very important topic. Excuse me, your, your screen, your camera not showing up. You turn it off deliberately? Or... I, turn off, I turn off my camera, is that okay? Uh, it's okay if you prefer, but it, uh, the audience might want okay. to see Start video. Face. There yeah, you go, I'm you. back on again. How's that? Great, great, excellent. Okay, um, then uh, we'll move into um, Uh, regenerative electric flight simulation. Uh, I have two videos. If we have time, I'll be able to show both. Uh, one is a slow floater and the other is a high-speed uh, aircraft. And we'll start off with a little bit of uh, aerodynamics here. This is a formation of white pelicans, um, uh, which I was a pleasure to encounter. And uh, I'd like to ask the, uh, for, as food for thought for the audience, um, does the lead pelican uh, enjoy a benefit or a penalty of leading the formation relative to flying solo? And to answer that question, we will apply the classical uh, uh, aerodynamic tool of a horseshoe vortex to the wing man or wing woman. So here's a horseshoe vortex applied to the uh, following bird. And um, the vortex, uh, the horseshoe vorte uh, vortex is like a, uh, a tornado and is going to induce upwash upstream and is going to also induce upwash outboard of its wingtip. And so we discover that um, the lead bird will actually be, is, has, enjoy a slight benefit of flying in formation. And uh, the, the benefits are much greater for all the followers. Um, but this is an example of the birds generating their own atmospheric motion for their own, for their own benefit to uh, in, increase the range for a given amount of energy expended. Uh, one of my friends, a retired uh, Navy jet pilot, said that after my presentation, he came up to me and said, I could feel my wingman when I was flying in formation, I could feel my wingman coming up behind me. Okay, our next example from the natural world is a great frigate bird. We have at the lower right male, and up at the top we have female. And the frigate bird is uh, nature's uh, natural region. It soars up and down uh, day and night on thermals up to around three kilometers. Um, <clears throat> it has the lowest wing loading of any bird. You'll find these, for example, in Baja, California. Uh, they have to some sort of an energy sensor, particularly at, at night, you would think. Uh, they, uh, they're able to sense whether they're in sinking or climbing air. And of course, they're gonna make sure that they get out of the sink and move into the, into the updraft. They have some sort of a sensor like for temperature or pressure that uh, allows them to detect whether they're gaining or losing uh, potential energy. Um, a curious feature of this bird, it cannot ever touch the water, although it has to come down to the water to pluck food from the surface. It cannot get its wings wet because it has permeable flumage. If it, if it gets its wings wet, it will never get back into the air. Sortie duration up to four days, uh, distances up to 1800 kilometers, um, extraordinary bird. Okay, uh, 150 million years ago, we had Archaeopteryx, Archaeopteryx the uh, fossil uh, which showed that the birds had evolved from, uh, from dinosaurs. And uh, one of the early flying creatures was neither dinosaur nor reptile. We don't know what kind of animal it really was, but it was a flying, certainly flying, and that's Pteranodon. 
huge bird, nine meter wingspan, uh, lived until 65 million years ago when we had the massive uh, extinction. Um, one of the interesting things about this bird was its little finger grew out with evolutionary time to become its main spar. The fossils of the Pteranodon have been found far out at sea, suggesting that it may have uh, implemented also dynamic soaring to fly uh, around. And it's also been speculated it doesn't have much chest muscle for do, to, to do much in the way of flapping. Amazingly, uh, just before Pteranodon went extinct, an early albatross was sharing the ocean skies. So imagine we have both types of creatures sharing the ocean skies. This happens to be Osteodontornis, also a huge bird, six meter wingspan, about 21 feet, um, living uh, uh, fossils found 55 million years ago, and of course, an earlier version 65 million years ago. Today, we have the world's uh, largest living bird is the uh, wandering albatross uh, with a three and a half meter wingspan, uh, 12, 12 and a half feet or so. The uh, observations of well-known naturalists we have from Jacques Cousteau, the albatross can remain master of its course, going all the way around the globe and against the strong winds if necessary, all without a single beat of its wings. Uh, we have David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, who said that the albatross can maintain swooping soaring flight on for hours on end without a single wing beat. So it's going to appear to define the laws of physics, but we're gonna show in this presentation that uh, indeed the bird does follow the laws of physics as it must. Some of the features of, of the albatross are, uh, it's gonna extract energy as we will show from the lower 10 meters of a 100 meter tall wind boundary layer. Uh, for those of you who are aerodynamicists, you know that the boundary layer thickness grows with the square root of X and the square root of X can be quite large when you work your way out to the middle of the Southern Ocean. Uh, the bird will, uh, we will show that uh, for dynamic soaring, it will climb upwind and dive downwind. And it's going to uh, typically pull a 3G turn every 20 seconds. Many of you in the audience have uh, been in a private airplane that pull, perhaps pulled one and a half Gs and you know how uncomfortable that is. Albatross is doing three Gs every 20 seconds um, and with no problem, it can travel in any net direction without flapping its wings. And we will show that with our simulation. And of course, it's able to follow the terrain, heaving the heaving waves uh, often half asleep. Uh, it will navigate with pinpoint accuracy every two years to, uh, uh, to the uh, location where it was hatched and uh, meet up hopefully with good fortune uh, with a lifelong mate. The uh, young birds uh, travel six times a year uh, around Antarctica. And uh, in some cases, uh, witnesses have seen uh, albatross uh, on their fledglings, on their, on their maiden flight, lift off and practice dynamic soaring without, right away, without any training whatsoever. The albatross, as I mentioned, has had 50 million years of evolutionary perfection, uh, optimizing its wing shape and size for the boundary layer that serves as its home. Um, only within the last 0.001 million years when the humans came along, uh, the bird is now suddenly threatened with extinction. Some of the threats include the drowning uh, with a long line fishing fleet, uh, human introduced chick predators, their nests are right on the ground, and more recently, um, starving with the imploding plastic at sea. Uh, some scientists have projected that by the year 2050, the total weight of plastic at sea will exceed the weight of all marine organisms. So for that, uh, that reason alone, I uh, am 
And I'm hoping that we can all join a movement to stop wrapping electronic and other products in plastic. Uh, the Europeans have already begun the process of, of wrapping any product that's ordered or purchased in a box, wrapped it in paper instead of wrapping it in plastic. Okay, to understand the essence of dynamic soaring, let's do a simple two-step wind profile. And we'll imagine that we have a, uh, a limousine traveling along the highway at 90 kilometers per hour. And we have two youngsters inside and each youngster is holding a model uh, uh, aircraft or a model bird. And the first youngster tosses the, uh, the model, very gently tosses it forward. Let's say it's a floater, tosses it forward. And even though it has 90 kilometers per hour of ground speed, it's unable to fly. And so it will fall to the floor of the car. The second youngster says, hey, let's open the moonroof. And the moonroof is open. And then toss the, uh, the same uh, model at a slight angle so that it uh, goes up into, through the moonroof and encounters a blast of air at the top of the car. And suddenly it has 90 kilometers per hour of airspeed. And uh, it'll be, the model will be torn from the hand and will fly way up into the sky to convert uh, kinetic to potential energy. This is really the essence of dynamic soaring is to pull up to an, an increasing headwind. Uh, more difficult uh, um, for people to understand is that an equivalent amount of energy is also gained uh, descending downwind in a two-step profile. So the, uh, another very, very important uh, aspect of this chart is to show that uh, flight kinetic energy is based on airspeed and not ground speed. And unfortunately, a European group had strapped a transmitter to the back of a poor bird and recorded its flight. Uh, and that uh, inertial uh, measurement unit was re basically recording, uh, in effect, was recording ground speed because of the shallow flight path angles of the bird. And they wrote a paper and claimed that they had discovered the secret of the flight of the albatross and their the conclusions were entirely erroneous because they had based their kinetic energy on ground speed instead of airspeed. Totally different results. Okay, here's an example of some actual data. This is a real uh, snapshot of real-time activity with uh, scientists uh, had, had placed um, measuring, floating measuring uh, units all around the Southern Ocean. We're looking up here at uh, Antarctica and uh, the contours are representing a wind speed, horizontal wind speed at an elevation of 10 meters above sea level. And if you look at the scale, we can say that on the, uh, roughly speaking, the albatross is, uh, is able to fly around with 13 meters per second of wind speed uh, at an elevation of 10 meters. And this is a wind profile, a typical wind profile uh, on the x-axis at the left here is a wind, uh, wind speed in meters per second and the vertical will be the elevation. So you can see that the boundary layer of wind is very, very high, a tenth of a kilometer high. And the, uh, the albatross is plying the lower 10 meters or so uh, of that to take advantage of the gradient. The gradient is over here on the right, showing that the most extreme gradient is down to like one meter above the water. Okay, so here's a force diagram on, on the bird. And um, we have the lift, drag, weight, mg. And we have a, a wind profile uh, using W to represent the wind speed. And we have the red arrow in the center is, the, uh, is a postulated dynamic soaring force. And you'll notice a similarity to Newton's law, the, uh, except here the, uh, the force is the product of mass times the rate of change of wind speed. So there's a mass times, it's, it's not really an acceleration, it's a rate of change of wind speed. Now, since the wind profile is fixed, 
the only way to have a W dot, the only way to have a rate of change of wind speed is to move vertically within the wind profile, as we showed in, the, in our example with the limousine. So the bird pulls up into the wind and gains kinetic energy when it does that. And then when it actually goes downwind, uh, it actually gains uh, kinetic energy again. So the component of this force that is aligned with the velocity, the airspeed vector V, is, becomes a dynamic soaring thrust. So uh, let's take a look at the arithmetic here. Um, <clears throat> here's our thrust, there's our airspeed. And by applying a, a series of sort of chain rules here, we can synthesize the uh, actual uh, dynamic soaring thrust uh, is proportional to the mass of the bird, the wind gradient W prime, W prime would be the vertical gradient dW dZ, and then some other uh, 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 angles and the airspeed. So, and the airspeed here, V. So the albatross is fairly heavy wing loading. And so, and that uh, gives it a higher velocity. So it, it has a high velocity and it punches into the wind where the gradient is high and uh, it, the force is proportional to the mass of the bird. Um, flying in a gradient, remember that the gravity is a gradient of potential energy and the force of gravity is proportional to the mass. To, uh, mass. So what we've done here is we have quantified, uh, we've provided hard numbers to Lord Rayleigh's observation of uh, qualitative description of dynamic soaring. Rayleigh around 1902, 1903, uh, took a trip to the Southern Ocean and witnessed the albatross dynamic soaring and concluded at that time that um, pulling up into the wind and uh, diving downwind was gaining the bird energy. And he used a two-step wind profile uh, in his uh, classic article. I found his paper after I had written my own, so it was very gratifying to learn that he and I were in total agreement. Okay, a complex three-dimensional trajectory can be modeled and understood by breaking it into to three pieces. We can look down on the trajectory and, and fit a turn radius. Uh, and we can look sideways at the trajectory and get a roller coaster loop radius. And each of those uh, radii, each of those circles has a, according to Newton's uh, law of uh, acceleration and circuit, circular motion, we have a vector or an acceleration pointed toward the, uh, the center of the circle. And then we also have uh, along the flight path, uh, V dot. Uh, and so these three orthogonal accelerations uh, can be uh, broken up and modeled uh, to uh, model the trajectory and understand uh, 3D trajectory. So we're taking advantage of, uh, of, of the, uh, the work of Isaac Newton, strong advantage of that. What we're gonna do with our maneuvering uh, simulations is we will schedule two angles and then uh, um, we'll let the equations of motion uh, decide, determine all the rest. So um, what better way to model the graceful flight of the albatross by, measure, by using trigonometric functions to model its um, up and down motion and banking motion. And uh, we can start with a simple sine wave for climbing and diving, and we'll need to modulate, we'll need to modify one in relation to the other so that the bird doesn't crash into the water. And so we can apply a sine squared term and when you do that, you get something like this. And so this allows us with a, with a, a very compact equation and only one or two parameters, adjust those parameters until, uh, and we let the bird go through one cycle of climbing and diving. And um, we adjust uh, the couple of amplitudes uh, until we get the result that we're looking for. 
Uh, we can also do a list of modifications of time, uh, uh, an auxiliary time for each cycle um, so that the bird skims the water uh, at, um, as, it, as has been observed in nature. Uh, banking left and banking right. So we're gonna, as I said earlier, we'll do two schedules of some sort of these angles and then let the equations of motion from Newton's law to determine everything else. Not to spend too much time on this uh, slide, but I want to show that all of these equations are being used uh, 10 times per second in our simulation uh, to model the, the normal load factor, drag to lift ratio, tangential uh, load factor, heading change, heading rate of change, lift coefficient, drag to lift ratio, and actual trajectory. So what we're doing is that we're picking a, we're picking a layer of air in the wind profile and we're applying all these equations of, for the motion within that particular layer. And then, uh, the, uh, uh, then we apply these results down here. So a, a bird that might be flying in a circular a pancake circle, uh, when you apply the wind to that, you'll end up generating a spiraling motion where the bird spirals downwind or upwind, whichever way it's headed. And uh, everything has been non-dimensionalized. This is a thrust group and a, and a drag group. And um, you'll notice that the, uh, the drag group is, is proportional to the normal load factor. And we talked about how the albatross is pulling three Gs every so many 20 seconds. And so it's very important that when you pull high Gs like that, that the, uh, we have a high aspect ratio to mitigate the induced drag. And that's why nature has endowed the albatross with an aspect ratio of something like 16. Okay, so here's uh, uh, Algebatross. Algebatross is a mathematically model with equations from tip to tail, and wingtip to wingtip, weighing 11 kilograms, uh, aspect ratio 16, wingspan three and a half meters. And we will basically analyze the trajectory and draw the bird every 10 times per second with our, with our simulation. So let's cross our fingers and hope that I can pull this up. And uh, this is available on my website. Uh, of course, your computer is a .exe. It's an executable, so your computer will try to protect you and prevent you from using it, but it's entirely safe. It was written with Visual Basic uh, 10 years ago. Let's see if it comes up. Here we go. Um, Ken, do you see this blue, big blue square? Yes, I saw the square said real-time yep. simulation of dynamic right. soaring. Yeah, okay, so you should see right now two blue squares on the screen for the simulation. Two? Okay. No, I only see uh, uh, one. Okay. Um, I think people also see only one on your okay, uh, PowerPoint. On. Do, you see, do you see the bird in the middle of the screen? Yes, with the, the white lines and the yellow. Yeah, yes. okay. So there's the bird, there's the algebra truss and I'm blowing it up here, you see that? Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I only see the, uh, the, the one with white lines. Right, so there's, what you should be seeing is a side view of the bird uh, with white line, a line drawing, a wireframe model of the bird with a blue uh, square background representing the ocean and the air. All right, I'm gonna gamble that everybody can see this okay and I'm gonna hit the okay. Let's do the downwind. Okay, fly. Uh, do you see the bird flying? No. You do not. We, we okay. can see only, this is the PowerPoint, not the, right. not the animation. You're only in the PowerPoint. Okay, so let me stop here. So uh, basically, um, okay. Um, I need to do a new share. Yeah, Diana and uh, Alex also say they could not see. Share. 
now 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 it's good okay now okay um Yeah, Diana, see, say uh, she can see it now too. Oh, now you turned okay. it off. I, I turned it off. Okay. Um, if I maximize the screen here, okay. So let me see here. Uh, I'm going to share the screen again. Click the simulation. Well, that's PowerPoint. I want to go. I think I have to have. Oh, I think I have to have the simulation open before I begin sharing. Let me do that. So there's a there's a simulation. Say so now. Minimize. Share the screen. Screen share. Okay, do you see the simulation? Do you yeah. see the, uh, yeah. okay, uh, full screen? Now it's full screen, perfect. And now say, okay, do you see the wireframe of the bird? Yes. Okay, all right, so let's do the, uh, let's do the downwind. Uh, okay. The wind is blowing out of the screen and the albatross is doing what we can call a circumpolar circumnavigation maneuver where it is traveling around Antarctica six times per year. Notice it is not flapping its wings. It's losing energy going across the wind. Now it's gaining energy going downwind. Now it loses energy going across the wind and now it gains energy upwind. And it continues this cycle uh, which includes a 3G pull-up every 20 seconds. And uh, it can do this for hours on end. All right, let's hit the stop here. And uh, this is traveling directly downwind. Let's take a look at the crosswind. Okay, so now the wind is blowing from left to right. Once again, the albatross is able to travel any direction that it wants to go without flapping its wings. Here we are, we're gaining energy, losing energy. Gaining energy, pulling up. And uh, I'll show a small trick here. The uh, One of the interesting things about the birds, uh, soaring birds, is that they keep their sensor platform level no matter what the bank angle is. And so you'll notice that the head, and that's been preserved in this simulation, the head remains level uh, regardless of the uh, um, bank angle of the wings. All right, let's hit the stop button here and do the last one, which is actually upwind. This was a very difficult one to, to uh, simulate until I discovered that we needed to keep, keep low. So instead of pulling way up high, the bird stays very down low to avoid being blown downwind. And it, now it's actually flying, progressing upwind, directly upwind overall with a sort of an S-shaped uh, trajectory. So uh, it's able to travel pretty much any direction that it wants to go. And this is consistent with observation by Jacques Cousteau and many others. Let me see if I can return to PowerPoint. Okay, do we see a picture of Herman Glauert now? Yeah. 
Okay. Never mind. All right. Okay, so we're now we have we're now into uh, into the world of humans now, and we're going to be doing some electric flight here. And um, Herman Glauert, the British, British, brilliant British aerodynamicist, was the world's top exponent, uh, expert in, in propellers in the 1930s and also an expert aerodynamicist. He was first to compute the distribution of lift on an unswept wing with any cord distribution and twist. Uh, he introduced the well used propeller blade element method. Um, he's half of the Prantle Glauert transformation, transonic uh, flight and with many other major contributors. And he said in his classic book, consider the case of a windmill on an airplane. He did not offer a specific application, but he knew that one day there would be an application of an airborne windmill, and we will be doing that in the re remainder of the, of the presentation. Here we have another visionary. We have uh, Paul McCready and uh, with his uh, model dinosaur, Um, of course, Paul McCready brought us the first human-powered flight. He then followed that up with the uh, aircraft that uh, pow powered solely by solar power. And then he went from there to uh, 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 participate in the development of ground electric vehicles. He wrote a classic paper in 1999 and introduced the regenerative electric flight concept. He introduced that with caution. Those are his words. Uh, he wasn't sure it could be made to work, but he introduced the concept of, of using the propeller to take off and then using the propeller as a turbine to regenerate the uh, energy in the battery uh, when the airplane encounters updrafts or ridge lift or final descent. Okay, so let's take a look at the cross section of, uh, of a, um, a rotor. We're gonna actually, this would be a wind prop. And so being a wind prop, we're going to give it symmetric sections because we want it to be able to operate essentially the same efficiency, whether it's propeller or whether it's a turbine. And we're introduced here what's called a pinwheeling condition. If we have a very specific distribution of twist, R tan beta equals constant. Beta is the blade angle, and omega is the rotational speed, uh, R is the local radius, W the wind speed. Uh, the airspeed, of course, is, is constant for all the sections of the blade, and the rotational speed is, of course, also constant. And so <clears throat> it doesn't matter what the airspeed is, in the pinwheeling condition, the, the blade will have zero angle of attack all the way from hub to tip. And if you fly faster, it'll spin faster. If you fly slower, it will spin slower, but it will have uniformly will have zero angle of attack on for, from hub to tip in this sort of a pinwheeling condition provided the has been given a twist distribution of R tan beta equals a constant. And that can be a wide range constant. Okay, now if we uh, increase the, the omega is the rotational speed. If we increase that by about 15%, all of a sudden we have an angle of attack on the section and we have lift and thrust and propeller operation. Conversely, if we reduce the rotational speed 15%, so, so the omega vector is getting shorter now, this, the rotational speed has been slowed down, we'll get lift in the other direction and we'll, so that we'll get drag and we'll get turbine operation. Uh, and, and regeneration uh, if we're hooked up to a motor or generator and, and battery. So we can define a speed ratio, which is very similar to propeller's advance ratio, but it's not the same. The speed ratio will be unity when we have a pinwheel operation, and the speed ratio will be less than unity for propeller operation or greater than unity for turbine operation. 
Now let's take a look. Um, this uh, uh, study right here uh, applies my uh, propeller analysis model, which, which numerically integrates the induced velocities of all the wakes of all the blades, um, uh, sort of a horseshoe vortex lifting line analysis, but it includes all the wakes, all the helical wakes. Uh, and we've done here, we've got here an eight bladed propeller. And then we have here a two bladed propeller. Both of these guys are the same diameter and they both develop the same thrust. The difference between them is that the, the A blade propeller has a very high pitch uh, angle, 30 degree at the tip, and uh, is uh, spinning very, very slowly compared to this guy. The two blade propeller is, has a more shallower angle, 14 degrees at the tip, and it is literally screaming. And uh, many of you are aware of, of, uh, of how uncomfortable it can be with a two bladed, two -bladed prop um, can be extremely noisy. Uh, tip Mach number effects are also going to come into play um, with, with the high speeds like that. But these guys are going to be shown by the analysis, uh, of, uh, fairly detailed analysis of both, uh, finds out that um, the uh, eight blade has a very slight advantage, believe it or not, over the two blade propeller. Anyway, this is a plot versus speed ratio on the x-axis. And the speed ratio of one, of course, is pinwheeling. And so when there's pinwheeling, there's no efficiency. It's efficiency zero. Uh, to the left of that, we have the efficiency of uh, about 84, 83, 84% uh, for the uh, propeller operation. And to the right of Unity, we have turbine operation and, and we have uh, um, about the similar 83, 84%. Now, it's very, very important to notice that this definition of airborne turbine efficiency is totally different from the, from the definition of a ground wind turbine. The ground wind turbine is, is uh, limited to 69% based on the way the efficiency was, was defined by, by the famous uh, German aerodynamicist Albert Betz. And here we have a airborne wind turbine. The efficiency is totally different. It's, it's short shaft power times the rotational speed divided by force and velocity, the inverse of propeller. And that efficiency is about, as you might expect, as a peaking at about 85% um, so at, uh, for regeneration. So keep in mind the shape of these two curves uh, of efficiency to speed ratio as we proceed into the electrical engineering, because there would be an extraordinary synergy there. <clears throat> this is the corresponding force that we see uh, versus the speed ratio. And so when we have propeller operation, we're way over here and we're climbing. Uh, we have the, the propeller blades are fairly highly loaded, fairly high force down here at cruising. Notice that when you were cruising, only about one fifth of the force required for climbing. Same thing that happens with your car. Uh, you, your car might be a 200 kilowatt engine, but it only consumes uh, 20 kilowatts or so uh, traveling level on, on the highway. If you encounter a steep slope, then, then that's when the 200 kilowatt becomes necessary. Pinwheeling down here with a very, very tiny uh, negative number. Um, it's not drag free, but it is a very, very small penalty. And uh, so there are some concepts of, of, of airplane where, uh, particularly for uh, urban urban air transport, <clears throat> um, the uh, the you can have multiple propellers and uh, and you'll need much much more lift to get for develop vertical lift. But then when you start flying horizontally, you only need a very small number. If the LMD of the aircraft is ten, you only need one tenth of the thrust. So you either throttle back an engine or whatever you're using way back down to one tenth of its capacity, 
or you let the propeller or you only use some propellers for cruising and turn others off or let them pinwheel. And the, the penalty for pinwheeling is actually very small. Over here, we have regeneration at maximum efficiency and then over here, regeneration at max capacity. So the forces are much smaller uh, in regeneration, but the efficiency is still about 84%. Okay. This is Michael Faraday uh, with little formal training. Uh, he uh, and was one of the greatest scientific uh, experts of all time, according to Ernest Rutherford. Einstein had three portraits. Yes. Nine minutes. Nine minutes. Okay, thank you. Okay. <clears throat> um, Einstein had three portraits in his office and uh, Newton, Maxwell, and Faraday. Okay, now remember the shape that we saw, er saw earlier for the wind prop. This is the uh, efficiency characteristics for a motor generator, permanent magnet motor generator. And the red curves are the efficiency curves. And you'll see that uh, versus the speed ratio of unity, uh, you'll see that we have the same behavior that we saw before for the wind prop. Here we have for motor operation and generator operation. Uh, as an aside, everything here has been non-dimensionalized, uh, non-dimensional current, non-dimensional torque. Uh, as, you, as we all know that at zero RPM, uh, the motor develops the highest torque and that torque falls off as we head toward uh, unity speed ratio where the EMF developed by the motor is equals, has built up to the point where it equals the battery. And so there's no current in the system. For the red curves, uh, as the efficiency of the motor generator improves, we'll move those red curves will penetrate deeper into the corner of the theoretical curve, which is the dashed blue line, which is sort of a triangle. You climb up the, 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 the dashed line and then instantly drop to zero, if you will, theoretically, at a speed ratio of one. In practice, we get those smooth curves. So with things like uh, superconducting and, and other improvements, um, the red curves will penetrate deeper into the corners uh, toward heading toward higher efficiencies uh, in the 90s. Okay, so now we have a permanent magnet uh, motor generator together with its um, inverter rectifier and the, and the power conditioning DC-DC converter. The DC to DC converter is absolutely essential for efficient uh, operation. Absolutely do not want to apply pulse width modulation to the main current, uh, something that's done with a model aircraft speed control. Because uh, when you apply pulse width modulation to the main current, um, the system will be highly efficient when, they, when, you, when, the, uh, when, the, when we have the on cycle, but then when we, the pulse is turned off, we have the parasitic losses of the motor persist. <clears throat> Uh, without do, do, doing any useful work. So efficiencies of the system drops to about 40% uh, if you use a, a typical um, chopping speed control for like a model airplane. So that's why uh, today's electric vehicles, ground electric vehicles like the Toyota Prius, et cetera, they use a DC to DC converter. And what that does is it, it's that when you're cruising, uh, it steps down the voltage applied to the motor. And when we're regenerating, uh, it uh, actually steps up uh, the work that the voltage generated by the motor so that it can pump energy back into the battery. Okay, given my nine minutes, so in, uh, this is a typical um, rect uh, uh, inverter rectifier, which is basically six transistors. Each of the transistors has a flyback diode, so you can't just chop current to zero without uh, dissipating the energy. 
And it turns out that the inverter does not really invert voltage. An inverter uh, toggles the uh, a battery uh, voltage on and off for each of the three phases, with one of the phases being floating at any given time. Um, these transistors are just are nothing more than high-powered light switches, and uh, you we have a, a diagonal pair uh, as uh, are used sequentially to energize the, the three phases. Now, for regeneration, the flyback diodes become critically important, and so they are uh, left in the diagram here and. When we uh, spin the, uh, the rotor, um, it turns out that um, the, we get a free ge regeneration for free uh, as a result of the uh, flyback diodes, which have about a 0.7 volt loss, but that's pretty small as we talk about 500 volts for uh, uh, a Toyota Prius electric car uh, or, or a comparable sized electric aircraft. 500 volts uh, is very typical, and some of the high technology hybrid air electric aircraft are looking at a thousand volts and even much more, more than that. So the diodes, the flyback diodes, are giving us uh, free regeneration, and that regeneration looks like the signal at the lower right hand corner. A little bit of ripple, that's actually a minor amount of ripple uh, current right back into the battery. So we're going to apply these with um, uh, this happens to be a, uh, a shot of. My, what I've called Coulomb Keeper, a silly name for an airplane which is very frugal with the uh, storage and expenditure of electrical charge. And it's high-speed partner Faraday first in the background. Uh, both aircraft, whether they're slow or fast, uh, are, are using 10 blades, uh, slow, very low, slow spinning 10-blade uh, rotors for high efficiency and to allow a, for the high-speed aircraft to allow the highest uh, Mach number that you could get. Uh, today's Airbus A400M transport uh, flies at Mach 0.7 uh, on propeller power. Both of these aircraft, by the way, have been modeled with equations, Python equations in Blender. Blender is a free computer graphics package, extremely powerful, uh, and it has a Python programming uh, window where you can mathematically describe the shape of the fuselage and the wing and a blade, a propeller blade. You can bring in a light you can apply it, you, uh, surface texture um, to the surfaces and then render it. And so it's a very, very capable package and uh, <clears throat> uh, available for free, blender.org. Okay, so how much time have I left, uh, Ken? Uh, you have uh, four minutes. Okay, very good. I think we're on schedule. Okay, this is a... Uh, a generic uh, aircraft uh, in steady state conditions, and it, it can be either gliding, it can be climbing, it can be banking, it can be banking and climbing, it can be banking and descending. As long as the steady state, we have this equation, we get this equation for the uh, rate of change of, of, of elevation, dZdt. It has a drag to lift ratio, it has a, a airspeed, and it has a thrust to drag, uh, propulsion group, thrust to drag minus one. Keep in mind the thrust will be negative, when we're regenerating. Okay, so here we have our clean airplane. Look, we're going to uh, take Coulomb Keeper, take all of the propulsion package off and start with a clean airplane. And the aerodynamics of that are give us something like a uh, um, one meter per second sink rate where the airplane is clean. But when it is regenerating, of course, we talked about how you get negative uh, thrust. Uh, and of course, we're going to have a penalty there. So we, in very round numbers, the airplane sinks at two meters per second when it has, uh, uh, when it's regenerating. 
that's modified somewhat by whether we are doing maximum efficiency or maximum capacity regeneration. Okay, and now we have uh, Herman Glauer did an analysis of, of updraft stream function study. And he showed that uh, if we fly with the, these various circles, we get so much of the horizontal wind speed as available as an updraft. Um, <clears throat> and uh, here's some typical terrestrial wind data, probability distribution. By the way, anytime you do a probability distribution, whatever the units are uh, on the x-axis will be the inverse of that on the y-axis. And the total area under the curve will be unity. Anyway, from this um, composite data, it looks like six meters per second of wind speed is a reasonable number to, for uh, modeling ridge lift analysis. Okay, and here we have uh, one of the Wright brothers um, soaring over the dunes of uh, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Must have been an incredible experience for them. Airplane happened to be slightly unstable, but they, they were able to, uh, to manage that. Um, this is the vector diagram at the right, of equilibrium of the lift drag weight and it turns out that the amount of that the amount of power provided by the ridge lift uh, is given by the product of drag and velocity, uh, and that turns out to be equivalent to the weight of the aircraft, the product of the weight of the aircraft, and the updraft um, of, of the same thing. So here we are. We're flying uh, in ridge lift, but let's take a look at some some of the numbers for various modes, thrust to drag ratio. Let's come over here real quick and look at uh, at what the, what's happening with the energy. Power. Climbing, we're consuming 26 kilowatts. So, so I have a negative number there. We're losing 26 kilowatts uh, uh, to climb. Cruising, 8.8 kilowatts. Um, ridge lift, we are regenerating. So we're earning three kilowatts. If we go into a thermal, we'll show that very shortly here, we earn 1.4 kilowatts. And this descending, uh, steep descent, we can actually pump five kilowatts back into the battery. So uh, the uh, the price we're paying here is we have like two and a half minutes of regeneration are necessary to just pay for each minute of cruise. And we have to regenerate for nine minutes to pay for every minute of climb. So depending on geography, if you if your airport is close to a cliff or close to a ready source of thermals, um, you could conceivably uh, take off, climb, and uh, regenerate for a while and come back and land uh, land on a full charge, the holy grail of, of, of a complete flight powered solely by atmospheric motion. Here's a uh, uh, typical profiles of a uh, updraft uh, of a thermal and uh, the airplane is uh, sinking and uh, but it, because the updraft is higher than the sink rate, it carries the airplane up into the sky. So let's take a look if I have, do I have uh, one minute left, uh, uh, Ken, for a video? Uh, yeah, of course, go ahead. Okay, so let me do a new share. And screen. Uh, do you see Coulomb Keeper on the screen there? Yes, now, yes. Do you see the airplane spinning around? Yes. Okay. Okay, um, the uh, mathematical model I provided to my friend Mario Marino, and he's an expert, and he actually animated uh, the aircraft uh, 
according to my instructions. Here we are, we're taking off. We're using differential thrust to, we have one person can operate the whole plane. That's why we have the winglets pointing down. So one person can operate this airplane uh, by him or herself. Um, <clears throat> dual counter rotating propellers, we're taking off. We have a full charge there, and, and we may have uh, the full charge may be hit, have been the benefit of a windy day, uh, putting a safety perimeter around the airplane and recharging the battery. So we're taking off with a full charge, climbing at full power in accordance with the numbers that we showed earlier. And uh, now we're entering to a ridge lift. We're going to fly along the ridge. Uh, we're earning three kilowatts pumped back into the battery. Now we're going to encounter a thermal. And as you can see, the aircraft is actually climbing because it is, even though it sinks at two meters per second, it's in a thermal, which is rising at three meters per second. So <clears throat> the aircraft is actually gaining internal energy as well as potential energy as it climbs in the thermal, provided the airplane is very efficient. And finally, we're touching down with regeneration. Uh, in descent. And let's hit the escape button here. There we go. And uh, I think we're ready to go to, uh, do I have 30 seconds left? Yes, no, I'm, yes, I'm out of time. Okay. So, um, conclusions. Um, regenerative electric aircraft is, is, uh, is getting an internal energy gain. From, uh, from atmospheric motion, uh, updrafts or thermals, exploiting ridge lift thermals and descent. It requires a high elevate and a low wing loading. So it's basically a sailplane equipped with a regen package. We can steepen the descent, we get landing thrust reversal, recharge parked in the wind in the field. A region is coming soon to an airport near you. Okay, for the Albatross, uh, we're gaining kinetic energy from the atmospheric motion and we're flying in up and down in the wind profile exploding the vertical gradient of horizontal wind. This requires a high LRD as we had before, uh, but it requires a high wing loading. So whereas the, the original electric was a floater, um, the, uh, the Albatross is a high speed, high wing loading, or, uh, punching into the aggregate energy. It's making net progress in any overall direction. It's nearing sudden extinction after 500, 550 million years of evolution. Uh, we're suffering incredible pollution with plastic at sea, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, let not the albatross vanish from the earth on our short watch. Okay, uh, you can visit my website, howfliesthealbatross.com for further details. Thank you very much everyone for listening. And thank you, Dr. Uh, thank you, Dr. Louie for the opportunity to present. Thank you, Phil, this is uh, fantastic, uh, very inspiring. Uh, we already got very positive feedback, everybody's so happy. Uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time, so, uh, but uh, Phil will be back uh, in the career panel. Uh, if you have further questions, you can ask him. And we also, he will also be there uh, in the breakout sessions. Uh, not only uh, he care about you, he will give you some, uh, share his career experience and uh, uh, he will be also happy to answer questions. Thank you, Phil. Thanks, thanks a lot again. Okay, so our uh, next uh, 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 session will be the student branch uh, presentation. So the first one will be uh, UCLA student branch. Uh, the branch chair is Oliver, uh, Mr. Lam. Uh, so uh, he said he will uh, have, yes, go ahead. Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, let me just pull up my slides.
Yeah, don't worry about the time because five minutes late, I will just push off a little uh, five minutes. So go ahead. Everyone can see the slides well. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Okay. So good morning. Uh, we're AIAA at UCLA. We are the student uh, AIAA student branch at UCLA. So just here are some photos of us. Okay, so uh, who we are. So on, at UCLA, we're a professional aerospace society and we have three main objectives. We focus on uh, professional development, um, academic support, and uh, our main focus is our technical projects. Um, so just to um, go over our events real quick, uh, we do, we've been doing virtual events this year, of course, due to the pandemic. Um, we've hosted uh, career fairs, info sessions, uh, we started a mentorship program, so um, um, underclassmen can connect with upperclassmen, uh, form a relationship to help them through, especially during this time, it's um, so difficult to navigate through school when you're not actually on campus. So with the mentorship program, um, uh, kids, or not kids, uh, members can reach out to older members for help. Uh, we do professional development series, so we do resume workshops, um, mock interviews, uh, basically anything that helps people uh, with their careers future. We also do class planning and help. And we also help do uh, K through 12 outreach. But of course this year it's been very difficult to plan anything, um, but we have participated in some virtual events. Uh, and then I'm just gonna go right into our technical projects because they have lots to say. Um, so we are the umbrella organization for design build fly at UCLA. So that's on the left, we have rocket project, our rocket project, and we have our unmanned aerial systems. So I think, yeah, I'm gonna introduce Paul Hawkins. He's going to talk about Design Build Fly. Yeah, so Design Build Fly at UCLA is one of the AIAA um, technical projects. Um, you can see some of the pictures from our planes the past couple of years on the slide here. Um, so moving on to the next slide, uh, so DBF takes, um, DBF takes an RC aircraft uh, throughout the design process um, to build planes for competition each year. Um, so each year the uh, parameters change. Um, you can see um, we have a foldable wing in one of the pictures. We have a um, plane with a ray dome that can drop projectiles. We have a plane that um, can take off from a short ramp. Um, so every year these change. Um, um, so in the next slide, um, you can see that our group is split into five main sub teams. Um, they're most active during different times year. Um, so right now we're kind of the manufacturing phase um, and kind of done with the design portion. Um, typically members are most heavily in one or two of these subteams. Um, so um, we'll have a virtual competition um, in 2021. Um, so the main challenge is to hold a sensor and containers as a payload and similar to last year, um, deploy, stow, and recover a sensor. Um, so last a couple of weeks ago, we finished the 60 page design report. Um, now we're starting to build components at individual households and bring them together for to Westwood for final assembly. Um, and competition will be virtual this year. So we won't be driving to competition um, in Arizona. So we'll have a pilot and a member filming a video at a nearby airfield to submit for competition. Um, so you can see our manufacturing plan on the next slide. Um, it's pretty heavily backloaded since we're only building one plane this year. Um, so just a quick look at our plane um, on the next slide. Um, so we're, we have the wing, uh, NACA 2410 airfoil, um, close to the maximum wingspan allowed. We have a sensor shaped like a rocket for efficiency. Um, we have a winch that we mostly printed out of um, 3D parts to, that we can unspool to release the sensor 
um, through bay doors um, and recovery. Um, so this year we expanded our general new member training um, and we found that it's been pretty successful. Um, so we'll kind of expand it for future years even when we're back in person. Um, we'll also run through more kind of advanced concepts after we have competition uh, next month. Um, and then you can see our social media page on the next slide. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And I guess I just wanted to say, like, with, with how, with um, um, everything being virtual, we found like some aspects of being virtual is actually beneficial. And we're planning to, of course, keep some of those aspects next year, including like recording our meetings so that if members can't make it to certain meetings, they could re always rewatch lecture or our meetings and stuff. So we're look very looking forward to incorporate everything next year when hopefully we uh, go back into person. Now I believe uh, Lindsay will talk about Rocket Project. Hi everyone, I'm Lindsay. I'm director of outreach at Rocket Project and we can get right into if you go to the next slide. So the goals of Rocket Project at UCLA are to cultivate the next generation of rocket engineers and industry leaders through a structured educational pathway, increasing project complexity, and of course, with required safety training. Also, my favorite part is giving back to the local community through K through 12 outreach. We have a little bit more than 150 active members right now, especially because we do have so many opportunities virtually, it's really easy for people to get involved. We can go to the next slide. So just a little bit about our project growth over the years. Uh, started in 2013 and until about 2016, there were 30 active members who worked on a commercial hybrid motor. They would do about one launch per year and have two hot fires per year. Starting in 2017, we partnered with the mechanical and aerospace engineering department here at UCLA. And now we have about 150 active members and we work on both a student build liquid and hybrid propulsion system. And so, each year we can get about 15 hot fires in and three launches. We can go to the next slide. Here's a little bit about our project pathways. Usually your first year you'll start in RISE, Rocket Introduction for Student Education. You work on a small solid. You'll move into our Prometheus team after fall quarter of your first year. And so you'll have both winter and spring quarter to work on your hybrid rocket. And then after that, you move on to Aries, which is a little bit more complicated of a system. And we'll get into a little bit more detail on that in the next slides. So RISE is the new member education program. Um, it basically just teaches what is rocket engineering and you're able to design a couple projects. It's usually a two unit course at UCLA, but there we were able to do a virtual version for fall of 2020 where we had five sections of about 25 students enrolled in each. And we've had excellent member retention since then. They were able to design a couple rockets um, just simulations and everything like that. And in the next slide, um, after that, they move on to Prometheus, which is our hybrid team. Usually the goal of that is to design and build hybrid powered rocket for launch at Spaceport America. And this year, unfortunately that was canceled. So we hope to be able to launch in a local competition um, given that the school will approve of that. We also, something that's really cool about having this hybrid team is that people with not much experience are able to get leadership positions and learn from um, mentors that are more experienced in Rocket Project at UCLA. Usually we can get about um, 12 static fires in. Um, oh, over the past three years, we've been able to get 12 static fires in. And we also, in 2018, finished second place at Spaceport America. And there's about 80 members now. We can go to the next slide. 
Aries is our liquid biopropellant team, and we are one of seven universities to build this type of rocket. Of course, the goal of Aries is to cultivate experienced rocket engineers and safe ones um, through the design, build, and test of a liquid bipropellant rocket up to 45,000 feet. And since this is what is seen in industry a lot, it prepares members for their career. We are able to, ha we have a one-year timeline for that, and we are able to maximize educational value since we build our own engines. There are about 60 active members on this project. And lastly, the next slide. There's STEM outreach, where we are dedicated to inspiring youth and promoting the STEM field. We usually organize trips to low-income schools in the Los Angeles area, talk about UCLA, rocket projects, STEM, engineering, and they are able to usually launch and build and launch small 3D printed A-motor rockets. And last year, we had about three school visits per quarter. We were able to visit the Children's Hospital and host 60 Girl Scouts to earn their rocket patch. This year, we've had virtual outreach opportunities, even reaching as far as classes in uh, Las Vegas and various Boy Scout troops. It's been really awesome. And we have also started a video series where we finished our introduction to engineering for kids focused about fourth through eighth grade. And we can move on. Here are just some pictures because when it comes down to it, we all learn so much through Rocket Project at UCLA and we want to be able to engineer change in our community. So thank you guys. Now David with UAS. Hi, uh, yeah, so my name is David Thorne. I'm the president of Unmanerial Systems at UCLA. Uh, we're the third and final technical project under uh, AIAA at UCLA. So if you go to the next slide, you'll see uh, just a description. We're primarily a project-based uh, club with about 30 members. Uh, we design, manufacture, and test autonomous drones. Um, we do both fixed wing and multi-rotor, but we pretty much focus on multi-rotor. Uh, and, and our uh, favorite aspect is the, that we allow our members to do a, a highly interdisciplinary uh, project that includes mechanical, electrical, aerospace, computer science majors, and plenty of others, uh, uh, all working on the same system. Uh, so if you go to the next slide, you'll see uh, we previously focused on AUVSI, uh, which is a mock search and rescue uh, competition uh, held in Baltimore, or Maryland, uh, near Baltimore every year. Um, but we have previous, or after it got canceled last year, we focused our uh, attention on two new projects. The first of which is a NASA sponsored research project. Um, and the second one is a, a competition sponsored by uh, NIST. Um, and I'll go into more detail of what each of those are uh, in the following slides. So the first one is this uh, NASA Undergraduate Student Research Challenge. Uh, it's a grant uh, focused around allowing undergraduates to decide on a research project and see it through. Um, so we got about $12,000 to um, build a, a system which would have multiple drones docked together, uh, be fixed together, uh, and then fly uh, to try and maintain either payload or extend the range of each of the individual drones. Um, and we're currently in the testing uh, size, size of this. Uh, we've gone through a preliminary and critical design review, uh, and we're about to make our first full system um, uh, physical system, right? Uh, and then the other project that we're working on, which is on the next slide, uh, is the first responders challenge. Uh, so our drone for this is the Bioenergy Robust UAV for Improperty Networking. It's just a clever way to make Bruin into an acronym. Um, the goal of this competition is to create a uh, drone which will cover a 10-pound payload for an hour. Um, and the idea is that that 10-pound payload would be a communications package allowing first responders uh, to communicate over an LTE network in remote areas. Um, think of like firefighters responding to a, a fire in a, in a remote area where you don't get good cell service. Um, 
so it's sponsored by NIST. Uh, we're drawn to it because it's a really ambitious project. Uh, not many college teams are working on it. At this point, there are eight submissions remaining, and I think two of them are college teams. Uh, so our solution uh, to fly for that long is we need efficiency, which comes from the X8 uh, configuration, which you see the stacked uh, motors. Um, and then we also use a generator uh, because uh, gasoline is just a much more energy dense source. Um, so uh, allowing this, uh, with all this, we're allowed to fly for approximately 90 minutes. Um, we've flown uh, this drone, but not with everything all at the same time. Um, last weekend, we were trying to do our 30 minute test flight, but we had a crash, unfortunately. Uh, but we're very confident that we will be able to fly for an hour plus, uh, given the June 1st deadline uh, for the final part of the competition. Uh, so those are the projects that we're working on. Um, and then if you go to the next slide, you'll just see, uh, reach out to us, website, emails, um, anything you, you might want to ask us about uh, or learn more about, always happy to talk. Cool. Um, thank you for your presentation. That's everything we have. Our contact information is there too. Um, if you have any questions about any of the projects, feel free to also just email UCLA and we can um, get you in contact with all our other clubs. And I think, yeah, that's it. We are on time. This used to be like a 30 minute presentation, but we've nailed it down to 15. <laughs> so yeah, if anyone has any questions, feel free to ask. And if not, I think we're good. Let's stop sharing. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver, Lindsay, Paul, David. Excellent presentation. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you see Mr. Gooden gave a very good positive comment. Very good. <laughs> All right, so we're on time. So uh, next uh, it will be Cal State Long Beach. Uh, so Diana, Ian, uh, you ready? We are ready. We'll yes, we're ready. Okay, cool. you can uh, get started. We'll start spotlight you uh, so we can get started. Thank you. Oops. Okay. Okay. So anyone start presentation will uh, add them into the spotlight so people can see them. Okay, perfect. Um, so hi everyone, uh, we, we're the Cal State Long Beach um, AIAA student branch. I am one of the co-chairs, Diana. I'm also joined by my other officers. If you guys wanna introduce yourselves real quick. Yeah, Hello, I, everyone. My name is. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Hello, mm -hmm. everyone. My name is Ian Clavio. I'm the other AWA co chair at Cal State Long Beach. I'm uh, Eric Graham, the, the ambassador for AWA at CSULB. Hi, everyone. I'm Monica, and I'm the secretary. Um, hi, I'm Nanette Perez, and I'm the outreach coordinator. And I think we have one more. Hi, my name is Alex Uribe, and I am the ASB representative for uh, our chapter. Cool, thank you. And then we'll go ahead and present to you guys now. Okay, so our current, our mission for uh, AIAA at CSULB is to advance the art, sciences, and technology of astronautics and astronautics and to promote the prom professionalism of those engaged in these pursuits. So 
the we encourage original research, student projects and competitions, professional development in multiple avenues. And then of course the education in engineering and science, which can be a multidisciplinary front. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so okay. this is our this is our current board for AIAA at CSULB. So all of our contact information is right there. So uh, feel free to feel free to uh, grab the email address if you uh, need to contact us about anything. And our channels are our channels are always open. And then I'm gonna turn the slide over to uh, Alex Uribe for the next slides. Awesome, thank you. So um, what is it exactly that we do as an AIAA chapter? Well, first and foremost, we provide networking opportunities to all of our students in our virtual general body meetings. These GBMs range from guest speakers from various engineering companies to professional speaker panels as well as resume and interview workshops for uh, students interested in uh, gaining internships. We also provide industry tours both before COVID and of course virtually. And these tours have included Northrop Grumman, Boeing, Virgin Orbit, and um, also including uh, labs on campus such as the uh, Solid Propulsion Combustion Lab. We also provide opportunities for students from uh, different backgrounds to gain hands-on experience and leadership skills in our student projects and other AIAA uh, professional events that we'll see later. Maybe we can get the next slide. Awesome, thanks. Um, and here are just a list of um, a few examples of events that we've held uh, both in the past and coming up. Uh, during the fall semester, we had a virtual job fair with North Grumman, as well as guest speaker panels from both uh, Relativity Space, SpaceX, and ULA, which was an awesome experience. Um, we also had resume workshops with uh, Fred Lauer, Lauer from uh, Raytheon, as well as um, a resume workshop with Relativity Space and Kushbu, um, leading up into the spring semester. Uh, in the future, we will have um, aerospace speaker panels um, with more companies, including Blue Origin and Northrop Grumman and um, a, another guest speaker from NASA JPL. Um, so AIAA outreach caters to the community as well as the elementary, middle, high schools and community college. Uh, we not only promote aeronautical and astronautical engineers, but all fields of STEM, including science, technology, engineering and math. Um, and we're able to do so by connecting with students as they prepare for their futures through their participation. Next slide, please. Um, so with everything currently going on uh, these past few semesters, our outreach has been, has been uh, virtual. So some of the virtual events we have done are lab tours where we had Dr. Kalman present on behalf of his solid propulsion and combustion lab. Uh, this was a great opportunity to expose students to some research that is conducted on campus. And a recent event we have done was a Q&A panel with an elementary school NLA. 
this was a panel introducing students to aerospace engineering. Uh, it was a great opportunity because this was many of the first times hearing about it, which was a great outlet to spark their curiosity and opening doors for their students. I'm done. Yeah, and um, in this part of the presentation, we'll hear from both of our student projects being Ezra and LBA, um, both um, work in aerospace um, uh, research projects, one being uh, rocketry and the other being a more um, uh, aviation based. Hi, everyone. So Ezra stands for the Experimental Rocky, I mean, Experimental Sounding Rocket Association. Um, we provide the opportunity to do research and gain experience in both solid and hybrid. Um, Ezra started off as a solid rocket project, um, but due to the pandemic, it we found it hard to do the whole manufacturing things. I know a lot of our leads graduated and a lot of people had you know personal issues going on. So we decided to shift the gears and turn it into a hybrid rocket project. So right now that's what we are focusing on. We are doing some research on hybrid rockets and we are hoping to do join a competition and do some launches for the upcoming year. So our goals for now are um, to apply and compete in a rocket competition which are with our hybrid rocket. And if and when our hybrid rocket is successful, we will be the only hybrid rocket team on campus. So that would bring um, great opportunities for our members and for students at CSUB who are interested in this type of um, rocket project. And our team is very diverse and, and inclusive, sorry. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the other project under AIWA, which is Long Beach Aviation. So it's kind of similar to Design Build Fly. It's a rather new um, project, but it's slowly growing. We have a um, good amount of numbers now. We actually have a full team. So you'll kind of see on the chart there, um, I am the project manager, but we also have our chief engineer. And then we have our five subsystems, structures, power plant systems, um, aero, and stability and control. So um, we are the only aviation focused project group at CSUOB. So we really focus on um, model aircraft, RC aircraft, but also um, quadcopters as well. We try to venture out to that. So um, that is us. And the next slide, please. So, um, Obviously with everything being virtual, we've kind of had to shift gears, um, but still um, are rather pretty active. So what we do is when we have our general body meetings, these are all virtual, but we'll focus on having seminars and workshops, whether it be um, in learning software um, or computer-aided design like SolidWorks. Um, and then also just um, overall general aviation topics and even inviting pilots to come and talk. Um, and then we also have individual subsystem meetings. So the leads for those subsystems, we, um, they will host their own meetings dedicated to either workshops um, for their subsystem or whatever they're working on for the DBF competition. So um, yeah, this, this is LBA's first time entering the design build fly competition. So it's pretty exciting. Um, 
And we, uh, yeah, so we submitted the design report and now we're currently building and we'll begin testing. Um, similar to kind of UCLA, we are just um, building with whoever has a 3D printer, um, building the parts and kind of assembling it at homes and bringing it all together. And then um, in the end, fly it and submit a video report. So look out for that. Be talking about uh, one of the biggest events, which is organized here, and it's the original. It's a British uh, have to aerospace engineering and compete for various cash prizes. Uh, these uh, these conferences also include exciting opportunities to network with professional students from other schools in the sixth area, as well as manage a project from start to finish. The last time um, Cal State Long Beach has ever hosted uh, this type of conference uh, was in uh, 2009, so it's been more than a decade uh, since Cal State Long Beach hosted uh, this conference, so we're pretty excited uh, to host it for this year. And this conference has been there every year uh, since uh, 2000. So we regional student conference. Uh, we confirmed for three keynote speakers uh, joining for our dynamics consultant, uh, Charles Vano, a retired United States Air Force Colonel, and Dr. VA who is a senior research engineer and professor at Stanford University. Some of the things that you expect at our conference are student presentations from many schools in the Region 6 area, which is the west side of the United States. We also prepare career workshops, social night, virtual tours, networking, and a virtual career fair. And this is all attentive and we're planning more events and workshops in the coming days. So this, um, Sorry, Ian? is still open for AAA. It's kind of cutting off, Ian. Um, yeah, you, you, may, you can try to turn off your camera, see if it will save your bandwidth. Um, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Much better. No, you can hear me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dana, Dana, can you hear me? Right. So, yeah, yeah. Way, way better. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. So, if you guys didn't catch uh, what I said past a couple minutes, um, we have many plans for a student conference, uh, which, which includes our virtual workshops, our career fair, and a couple of industry, a couple of virtual tours. Um, if, again, everything is tentative and we'll be providing a schedule in the coming days. Talk about question uh, against an open by national member and our prince is going to be Saturday, April 3 and Sunday. And on top of that, we will also include 
A virtual network and that will happen on Friday presenting a research paper in our conference. The manuscript deadline is due tonight at 11.59 p.m. And for those uh, that still have yet registered for our conference, our registration and refund deadline is on Friday, March 19, less than two weeks away. And some of our notable uh, conference sponsors that helped us organize for this event are Airjet Ragadine, Space Dynamics Laboratory, Aerospace Corporation, United Launch Alliance, and the United States Air Force. So we're open that once organized for any help and need for us, we're looking for new recruiters for the virtual career fair. And they can be uh, from various industries, companies, and organizations, uh, from laboratories, aeronautics, astronautics, mechanical properties, and many more. So if you're interested uh, in participating, you can contact me and Diana uh, through our AIAA chair email, at chair at ccobaaa.org. And then uh, for the next part, I think, okay. Okay, um, I don't know if anyone has any questions on that because I know it got kind of cut off. Um, but hopefully uh, we will see you guys at the conference. If not, um, somehow stay connected. But we, this is kind of, so just in summary, how we have transitioned from um, in-person to virtual and still staying as an active branch um, with the events we're trying to provide and by hosting the conference for the first time since 2009. Um, so yeah, if you guys have any questions, please let us know or email us. Um, and thank you, Ken, for having us. And um, I'll be putting in the website uh, in, the, in the Zoom chat so you guys can take a look at that, which will include um, uh, more details on what to expect in our Region 16 conference this year. Thank you. So that's all we have. Uh, you can scan our QR codes to get in contact with us. Um, do you guys have any questions? Probably running short on time, we know, Ken. So. <laughs> oh, no, don't worry. We will uh, make it up. So uh, thank you so much. It's really amazing, wonderful thing you're doing. Thank you so much. And this is a great opportunity, you know, to show uh, the public what the AIAA uh, student branch has been a wonderful job and to show that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that you know, you rising stars and the AIAA support for you all. So thank you very much again. So stay stay with us and uh, with the program today and uh, uh, you know and best, best wishes to the student conference. Thank you. Uh, cool. Okay. So next, thank we'll, you. Yeah. Thank you so much. So uh, next will be the um, the USC student branch. So uh, the uh, uh, the host for there is uh, Ava. Ava. So if you turn on your video camera, we can uh, spotlight you. Uh, and the graduate pro your team up. Hi, good afternoon. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, great, great. Good to see you. Good to see you. Awesome. Good to see you too. Let's yeah. see if the, the Zoom powers that be will let me 
share my screen. Are you able to see a title screen that says USCRPL Fight On? Yes, yes, fantastic. Perfect. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ava Bedi E. I'm from the uh, USC student branch of AIAA. And I'm here to talk to you about one of our student design teams at USC, which is USC Rocket Propulsion Laboratory. Um, we were founded in 2005, and we consist of primarily undergrad students passionate about rocketry, with our founding goal being to become the first undergrad team to make a student designed, student built, student flown vehicle, which would pass the Kármán line um, and reach the boundary of space. Um, we've done so with our um, vehicle Traveler 4 in 2020. And so our goal is to move from a space shot to a space program, um, move towards internal and commercial customer payload integration, and for the development of our bread and butter solid rocket, solid rocket propulsion systems, as well as our liquid um, propulsion systems as well. Um, so we are by USC RPL for USC RPL. Um, we heavily focus on giving students hands-on design work um, starting from their freshman year. And we love to fail fast and fail forward. So we wanna iterate frequently, um, go through R&D relative to analysis, um, propulsion, avionics to make sure that um, every year there's some measure of productivity that we can gauge ourselves and um, look back towards as a metric of improvement. Um, so we do develop our space shot class solid rocket propellant motors, um, experimental subscale propellant motors, and we're currently in the process of developing our liquids program as well. Um, and we emphasize design, manufacture, test, integration, and execution. Um, so I'll be telling you about a little bit of the subsystems we have um, featured at USCRPL and what they've been working on um, in the interim. So the people come first, the rockets follow. We emphasize building the people who build the rockets. We're not just here to build um, systems. We build the people who will build the systems in industry and academia. Um, one of the projects we've completed in the past um, year and a half or so is Traveler 4, um, which uh, accomplished a founding goal of the lab, which was to send a rocket to space. So it uh, achieved an apogee of almost 340,000 feet um, and had a max Mach number at almost 5.1. Um, from there, we did achieve our goal, um, but we got good data um, from both an avionics and manufacturing perspective. Um, there were definitely changes to the vehicle which need to be made for future space class um, attempts. Um, and we're proud of, as a team that we were able to um, just push this rocket over the finish line um, and be able to iterate on it further. We've also in the interim um, flown Poise, um, which was, I believe it was flown in January of 2020. So just before we all went under lockdown, um, that was an experimental vehicle, which dealt with extrudable propellant formulation. Um, our goal there was to increase the density and lower viscosity of our um, previous propellant formulations in order to eventually build up to the capabilities of uh, developing a case-bonded um, vehicle. Um, it also included R&D relative to separate deployment for recovery, um, a black box integrated test bed for our avionics team, and we also streamlined manufacturing of our carbon phenolic nozzles as well. Um, this is the vehicle here, and it was flown at MTA. Um, and I'm sure a lot of you will, will recognize the stand right here. So 
This is what we've done in the past. There are things we are doing in the present and definitely actions we have for the future. So for Dome Piercer, um, that's our mascot for moving from a space shot to a space program. We're targeting the highest amateur altitude ever. Um, and it's the first ever USCRPL payload integration. Um, we've simulated an apogee of approximately 430 key feet, um, although we'll, we'll likely revise that number as we get further along in design. Um, we're excited to see where this goes. And I think the most important thing to note here is um, all of our successes, as well as our failures of previous space shots, um, have definitely fed into the ideation and design of this vehicle, um, which brings to mind our um, ethos of failing fast and failing forward. Um, if you can see the text in this um, firing shot here, you can see Graveler 2 on the side. Graveler 2, um, which was uh, fired during my freshman year, um, at the time was the largest amateur composite case static fire ever, um, but we don't want to leave records back in 2018. We want to keep making them. Um, and iteration is great, so we want to, again, uh, have a set of world record for the largest amateur composite case static fire in history. Um, this will test the motor we want to use on Dome Piercer and give us a, a better idea as far as how um, hard can we stress our case design as well. Um, in addition, we also have a sophomore junior design vehicle. Um, so in order to prepare them for um, space shot design, manufacture and launch operations, um, we'd like to give our younger classmen um, a vehicle they can practice their manufacturing techniques on. So the name's Bond, Case Bond, um, because this is a case-bonded um, vehicle. So the solid rocket propellant ideally is cast directly into the case rather than first in segments and then integrated into the case. The idea being that you're taking advantage of the volume you have in the case, um, lightning, replacing the hardware mass you would normally use for a integrated solid rocket motor with just more propellant. More propellant is more thrust, which everyone likes. Um, we are also um, making our first foray into liquid rocket propulsion. So we are developing freezer burn, um, great name, which is a uh, biprop liquid test stand, um, which is supposed to help us test an engine that'll help us um, launch to about 30,000 K feet. Um, we plan to work with LOX kerosene in the future. And this is stu fully student design, um, manufactured um, and ideally built once we get um, to be in person. We plan to participate in Bars Dollar Perfect Challenge, and we plan to scale this up to a space shot down the road. This is especially enable us to network with folks in industry um, regarding their advice in um, dealing with liquid rocket propulsion engines and test stands. Um, so while nascent, this is very exciting. Um, I'll quickly go through our, our sub-teams. Um, we do have an operations sub-team, which helps us focus on lab safety and compliance because health is number one. Um, they also aid us in launch and static fire planning, recruitment and retention, as well as university relations. Um, propulsion, which is the team I head, um, helps us light motors um, safely and effectively. So if you like to light things on fire, this is the place to go. Um, this team especially has dealt with some major R&D changes in the past three years so that um, we get to the point where we can develop um, head-end motor ignition, case-bonded development, and finisal technology. Um, and we also support analysis, integration, and testing for static fire and launches. 
um, our analysis team analyzed component behavior, optimized performance, and developed models for um, parts such as our bulkheads, um, graphite nozzle, nozzle carriers. Um, the um, not so great thing, as I'm sure everyone can attest to in the pandemic, is it's very difficult to be allowed to be able to manufacture in person. Um, the great thing for our teams is teams like analysis have really come to shine because um, all the work can be done um, on the computer, right? And having access um, to Siemens NX or ANSYS or other softwares that allow you to conduct um, static structural analysis or thermal analysis um, helps students develop the skills they'll want to use in the industry. Um, we also have manufacturing. So um, although uh, slightly dormant during this pandemic time, um, this does give students the ability to, to handle materials, um, metal, as well as composite structures that they'll be able to manufacture and lay up in person. Um, we do have a recovery team which designs and builds a nose cone deployment system. So you can see an example of one of our tests here. Um, our recovery team use is a custom off-the-shelf uh, CO2 ejection system, but they've currently been um, working on their own R&D because um, we like as many things on the rocket to be student-made and student-built as possible, right? Because that's how we learn. Um, so they're dealing with a pyroless recovery design um, in order to initiate ejection of the nose cone from the airframe. Um, our DAC team collects pressure, thrust, and temperature data from static fires. They've been having a wonderful time with our liquids uh, program as well because uh, their work has increased exponentially um, so this also allows a, a great way for students who don't get necessarily the um, skills they will need in industry and class to be able to exercise their muscles um, in a real life condition on a student design team. Our avionics team has the goal of collecting data from the rocket during and after flight, which includes a finite stage machine, data recording, as well as sensor drivers. Um, we design and lay up our own custom PCBs, which uh, provide altitude, dynamic sensing, telemetry, and recovery deployment. They're working on a myriad of R&D projects, um, and they would certainly like me to note that uh, this odd structure that you see here actually allows us to um, integrate more of our avionic structures as well as recovery hardware. Um, so instead of the, the typical uh, square PCB bed that you might see um, this actually allows us to fit it a uh, little further up into the nose cone, gives us more payload and recovery base space, um, which makes the rest of the team happy. Um, there's the R&D team, which contains everything. Um, there's 13 active projects related to lighter case designs, um, a, a custom composites cutting table, pyroless design, um, fitness and case bonded technology, vacuum casting technology, um, pancake PCBs, um, eventually metal fin metal uh, fins with metal leading edges down the line. Um, projects typically have a life cycle of one to two semesters with a budget of less than five grand. The, the point here isn't necessarily to develop something that's perfect, it's to prove the governing laws of physics that make you think you can complete your project. Um, with the goal being ideally to put your design on a vehicle within your time at RPL. Um, the simulations teams allows us to um, size rockets, optimize our fin geometry, and select our motor geometry, as well as track vehicle measurements over our design cycle. Um, they help develop custom post-flight analysis hardware 
um, and, and help us reconstruct the, the, the flight of our rockets from recorded data and document results. Um, this is especially important whether or not your rockets um, let, uh, fail to land um, and be recovered. So whether or not whether or not your your avionics uh, unit is able to be recovered um, helps. Like, sorry, I'm stuttering a little. I'm trying to say uh, simulations has been um, especially required and needed um, in order to be uh, for us to be able to define our flight paths moving forward. Um, and given that we've been relying them more and more now that we're all online. Um, I foresee them being a, a more powerful team coming into the, the near future. Um, and to finish everything off, um, we need people in order to build the support systems we use. Um, so the protection, protection systems team um, helps us develop and maintain the tools that we use to communicate in labs. So um, the people who tend to our Discord, Confluence, um, and our custom in-house ordering system and inventory suite, um, they're the team that we go to for support. Um, and they are very dearly needed. So um, unfortunately, many members of the team couldn't be here today. Um, it's certainly more than me, and it consists of years of students and alumni and professors who have helped us um, be able to develop our technology to where it is right now. Um, so if you're ever interested in talking or just saying hi, um, my USC email is here. Um, and USCAAA's email is here as well. Um, so thank you and flight on. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Very, very, uh, great job. Excellent. Keep doing the great work. Really appreciate it. Uh, so Randy, Randy, do you want, uh, I think you want to say something? Uh, no, that's it for me, just Ava. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were going to say something about your, you know, branch in general? Uh, no, we've pretty much been up to the same work that everyone else has been. You know, we've had various lecture nights, um, things like that. But today we just really wanted to highlight the wonderful work that RPL has been working on. Yeah, thank you, Randy. And actually everybody who didn't know, actually UCLA won the uh, AIAA DBF uh, 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 contest, the first, first prize last year. So they actually made a representation already with us uh, in September. Uh, so it's fantastic. So really, thank you, you know, Randy, Ava. Really appreciate, wonderful job. Really appreciate. Keep the keep the good work. Yeah, thank you for having us, Ken. I thank you so much for being here today. Appreciate it. Um, so anybody from UNLV here today? Yeah, I contact them. Unfortunately, UNLV people um, uh, they say they apologize. Uh, this year they kind of impacted by the pandemic, uh, pretty much. But you know, they they actually managed to provide an article. And they want me to say hello to, to everyone. Um, I will go, I'm going to show that uh, they have a couple of pictures, um, you know, to, to everyone to share their uh, excitement of there. Uh, where is that? Uh, yeah, here, here. Okay. So, all right, just give you a second to show. Okay, so this is their um, uh, the, the group pictures in the article. Uh, they are the third place last year you know, after uh, UCLA and another school. And, uh, you know, so instead of making a presentation, they actually provide us the article, which are going to be posted on the, our AWA newsletter. Uh, we have article uh, for UC USC, you know, the first prize last year already. 
So it's, uh, the UNLV people has been kind of hampered by, uh, badly by the pandemic. So, um, so their uh, leading uh, leadership is uh, Sophia and Jet. Uh, so uh, they, they have been trying to uh, regroup uh, within the pandemic. I think several of the members here, they actually have graduated and went on to work in the industry. Um, Emma Chow, last year he won the uh, best presentation uh, and a couple of people. So uh, they were happy, they were working on the project and uh, they were proud to be part of AIAA. Uh, and uh, I think some of their students actually work on some kind of nuclear power propulsion with Los Alamos. And she also made a presentation, I think that October last year with us. So uh, we are trying to engage <clears throat> individual uh, from your branch and also as a group, as much as possible, provide uh, the support for you all. Um, yeah, one thing, you know, just look at what you have been uh, presenting is just fantastic. They're just amazing tests, uh, you know, equal to any professionals, so even better. Uh, but at the same time, you know, because uh, every year uh, we do this every year to have you every, gather together uh, to try to see if there's something more we can provide, but also as, as a, uh, uh, together, uh, get together and uh, to show the public what AIWA student branch has been doing. So even though we have been doing wonderful job and we have here and there and the uh, effort, but uh, this is uh, a great opportunity, you know, more people, you know, people pay attention. They told us, wow, I mean, individually you do a lot of great job, but I think people didn't realize when you went out, you know, piece by piece, one by one or something like that. But when you all get together and the, the, uh, I, I, we got several comments, so they never realized, actually, they actually didn't know yeah, that we had student branch doing great jobs. But because you get together, you show the, you know, people, you have a lot of, you know, branches and students, they, they notice, they pay attention. They said, wow, I mean, this is really cool. AIWA is, you know, student branch, wonderful job. And they start to pay attention. So it, it's good, you know, the branches, you know, once in a while, you know, uh, annually get together. Of course, Region 6 is doing the paper conference. So we are not trying to compete with them. It's actually to, um, uh, complimentary, you know, we are more like a get together, give a chance to network, help a career, and uh, the uh, paper presentation is more uh, for for publication. Although we can do that as article, but it's not the uh, the headquarter thing. Yeah, so so really fantastic, uh, great opportunity. We we are ahead of time, but to just uh, say something on behalf of UNLV and uh, just you know they are trying to regroup. Uh, they are hoping to participate in a regular event and also next year's uh, gathering get together for the student branches. Uh, we look forward to hear from them, you know, and uh, you, if you some of the people graduating this, you might see some of them uh, from, from, um, from, from this uh, the UNLV branch. Um, officially, let me explain, you know, UNLV Las Vegas section in general, uh, we are called Las, Los Angeles Las Vegas section uh, but actually Las Vegas is supposed to, to get independent. It's called the Foster Chapter. So Adelaide has this called the Foster Chapter. So they are recruiting members there and uh, at some point uh, they will kind of be on their own, uh, but we have been together, you know, operation to uh, work together. Uh, so in a sense, so, uh, so if you have any question regarding to the education, you know, uh, liaison Kushbu, Ms. Patel was a good person to contact. Uh, I am an event program chair is helping logistic put to pick uh, people together, uh, have uh, social event, you know, um, professional events. So if any question, please let us know. So I think we have good in time. So our 
uh, we are back to the professional speaker. These are to inspire, uh, you know, uh, everyone, you know, for, for what people has been advancing rapidly in aerospace. So our, let me see here. Here. So our next speaker will be Dr. Naho Menamed. Yes, welcome, Dr. Menamed. So happy to see you. It's so exciting. Oh, can I hear you though? Ah, oh, I think it's remember the, the microphone. Remember last time there's a microphone. Can I hear you? Oh, if you have a cell phone, you can use the phone number to, to dial in and keep the video there. No, still cannot hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good, beautiful, beautiful. Okay. Yeah, I had to enable the microphone on my uh, headphone. Okay, uh, so let, let me just briefly uh, introduce you, but you are welcome to self-introduce. Uh, self so quickly, Dr. Nahu Menemen is a AIWA Distinguished Lecturer. Uh, he's a project leader in aerospace corporation. He's uh, um, received bachelor science degree and master degree from aerospace engineering from uh, Technion, Israel, and a PhD in aerospace, in aerospace engineering from Georgia Tech. Uh, his expertise include orbital mechanics and optimal guidance. His key activities include planetary defense from near-Earth objects, space debris mitigation, and fly uh, software validation. He leads a co collaboration with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory developing physics-based web NEO diffraction app, or MDA, to design NEO diffraction missions and gain insights on the challenges involved. This includes this group uh, descriptions and tutorials that are necessary to interpret the data, supports planetary defense conferences, workshops, and exercises. And it's available online. Please uh, visit there. It's very, very fun and exciting. And then they keep up updating it. That man uh, served on planetary defense conference and planetary defense exercise organize, organizing committees, giving talks to these venues and uh, instructs a planetary defense class of, at aerospace. And if you remember the first speaker, Mr. Barnes, he was talking about the ancient dinosaur, the uh, bird, flying birds actually got distinct, extinct. That's a very important thing for Dr. Menes research. You know, we don't want to be extinction. So, uh, so this, welcome Dr. Menemet, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Can you see my screen? Uh, yes, a very handsome picture. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, so welcome everyone. Uh, very inspiring set of talks. Uh, I learned a lot myself and got inspired uh, learning about uh, um, developing people who develop rockets and develop satellites and about uh, regenerating electrical airplanes and looking at what the teams are doing. Uh, really fantastic work. Uh, I'd like to present some of the work that you could be doing uh, in the different organizations that you might be interested in. Uh, the area which is my personal uh, area of passion is something that's called planetary defense. Uh, I'm going to do everything here online. So everything here that you see is basically on the web and you can actually go and visit those 
websites on your own and explore the topic. So I've been with Aerospace, the Aerospace Corporation for 18 years now. Uh, and you can read about me. Uh, uh, thank you, Ken, for the intro, which was a very good one. So let me jump uh, to the next. What we are doing on planetary defense, we are collaborating with NASA. NASA is the main organization at Eros, at, uh, in the US that deals with uh, the topic of planetary defense. So I encourage you to go and visit this website. It's a fantastic website with a lot of truly interesting information uh, about asteroids and about the hazards that would come from space. Uh, for those that don't know what is planetary defense, go visit the frequently asked questions part and it will tell you what planetary defense is. And it's basically those kind of things, finding those, uh, finding and tracking those Earth objects that would pose a hazard to our planet and characterize how big they are and how fast they move and uh, where they could hit and what sort of damage they could inflict. And also what can we do in case we are faced with an object that would that is on a collision course with the planet. <clears throat> so we are going to do a reality check soon, but this is a fantastic uh, website to go visit and learn about those different uh, activities that are done both domestically and internationally. Uh, locally here in Southern California, uh, you may be aware of a Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, uh, which sent those fantastic missions to Mars and to the moon and to planets and moons of planets, uh, and also to uh, missions to near Earth uh, activities. Uh, they have a fantastic website that's called CNEOS, very cool name, right? C Near Earth Object Studies. Uh, I encourage you to go visit this website. It has uh, <clears throat> a variety of useful information, both again domestically and internationally. And we are going to explore this website a little bit. We are actively collaborating with the NASA JPL. And I'm going to show some of the things that we do on that topic. Uh, as you can see here, there are several tabs that are part of this website. I'm going to explore some of these tabs and see what happens. Um, when an asteroid or a comet is discovered, uh, it could be done internationally and it is being placed uh, on a database, which is called the Minor Planet Center, uh, managed I think by the Smithsonian organizations. And every object is placed there with the best information we have on it. So if you want to find any of those um, deep space objects that are uh, known to us, it's going to be on this table here. Um, some of those objects actually uh, impact our planet. Here is a, a map of the fireballs uh, that was detected by our government sensors. Basically, basically, they look at explosions in the atmosphere and put it on this map. Uh, you can hover on each one of those uh, dots here. The size of the dot tells you the amount of energy that this object had released. None of them caused major damage on the ground. Some of them were large enough. We're going to talk about this one specifically in a minute or so. Uh, and in the last uh, about three decades or so, there had been uh, about 859 entries. As you can see, they're evenly uniformly spread around our planet here. And 
these are examples of what can happen to us, how these objects can actually collide with a planet and potentially cause damage. We didn't hear about the majority of them because they either occur over the ocean or in remote desert areas. But when they are large enough, sometimes you can catch a fireball in the sky, hear the sonic boom that it might uh, generate or the meteor, the light that it might generate in the sky. And that's a cool thing to do. It's being tracked on this map and several other resources. But these are objects that actually have hit us. Let's look at either examples of objects that did hit us. Um, and from Wikipedia, uh, we can look at the, the consequences of a large asteroid or comet hitting us some 65 million years ago. Uh, it impacted in the Yucatan Peninsula in northern Mexico, uh, created the Shiksulub uh, crater. Uh, obviously, there is no crater there today. If you were to look, if you were to visit in this area, we'll see no large, huge crater. So how do we know that there was a crater there uh, when the impact occurred? Uh, the oil companies are doing space, uh, exploration from space to find gravitational anomalies, uh, to know where to dig for oil at the bottom of the ocean. And they found those circular shapes that are not explainable by any geological activities. And the only way to explain such circular shape in the ground is by the impact of the crater. Recently, they actually uh, ex um, um, dug some material from uh, down below the ground and they analyzed the material and they determined that indeed this was the place where a big asteroid impacted our planet 65 million, million years ago and caused the uh, extinction of the dinosaurs. And this is part of the huge concern that exists with those space objects. So I invite you to go read uh, that Wikipedia page. It's a fantastic page. And one of the interesting things that they have here besides just animation of how those impacts <clears throat> create those impact craters is, let's see if they have it here it is. So the whole thing got started from those uh, um, Berkeley geologists that uh, went to Italy to study the magnetic field of the world. And he looked at this um, uh, sediment layer uh, of limestone from many, many millions of years back. And the interesting thing that he found is that there was a, uh, <clears throat> a layer of ash that separated millions of years below it and then million, millions of years above it until today. <clears throat> the Limestone below it contained fossils of dinosaurs in abundance, but none were found above that layer. So this was clearly an extinction event. Uh, they found that the concentration of iridium in that ash, a layer of ash was 600 times uh, <clears throat> more uh, condensed than exists on our planet nominally. And we know that this type of uh, concentrations uh, exist in objects that uh, uh, come visit us from space. So they concluded that was a, a proof that in fact, a, dinosaur, a, uh, a big meteor, big uh, asteroid or a, uh, a comet caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. So uh, go visit this page, read a lot about it. Uh, more recently, about 50,000 years ago, there was another object that in fact did hit our uh, it hit, did hit the ground in our neighboring state of Arizona. It's called Meteor Crater or 
Barringer crater. And here is a, uh, a picture from space. Again, in this uh, Wikipedia page, uh, you can read and see additional links to additional materials. Uh, if you're planning a visit to the Grand Kenya area, which is in this region here, uh, it's a small detour to come visit this uh, 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 evidence of what these objects can do to us and also stop at the visitor center and uh, touch big pieces of meteorites that made it down to the ground and read a lot about it. It's a fantastic visitor center. Uh, so uh, again, I'm inviting you to read uh, uh, this Wikipedia page as a starter. Uh, here's a, a bigger picture of uh, uh, the crater itself from the edge of the crater. As you can see here, the desert is largely flat around it and there is a big, big, impact crater here that was caused by this relatively small object, just about <clears throat> 40 or 50 meters in size, about 150 feet across, created, created a crater that's almost a mile wide. Um, okay, and then, uh, let me go back to where I was there. So we looked at that. Um, uh, and this is how it looks in this area. Uh, you can read about the geology and you can, if you stop there and you can uh, stand at this observation deck and look at uh, this amazing power of nature uh, effect on our planet. Uh, <clears throat> a more recent event occurred in Russia in the year 1908. There was a, another big explosion in the sky, it's called the Tunguska event because it occurred in the Tunguska region of Siberia. It flattened over 2,000 square kilometers of Siberian desert that looked like that after the explosion. Uh, and 2,000 square kilometers is an area that's larger than most of our big cities. Uh, if the same event had occurred just three hours later, uh, Moscow would have been gone. Today, they, they are about 11 million people living there, they would be all, all be gone in, a, in an instant if that uh, event had occurred just three hours later. At that time, there were less people there, but these kind of events occur uh, several times, uh, if, not a, if not in a century, in every two or three centuries. So <clears throat> again, go uh, visit this uh, Wikipedia page, read about that event, which is really probably the most modern uh, event that was witnessed by multiple people. They didn't know what, what it was exactly. This was the, before the age of big rockets and bombs. So uh, they figured out it came from outer space and exploded in the sky. There is no crater around it, but it did destroy the forest. Um, let's see here if there is any additional information. This is about uh, the size of the object. They estimated it about perhaps 60 meters. Today, they estimated even smaller relative to Eiffel Tower and Empire State Building, um, which created this, this crater. So uh, go visit this page. Uh, and actually uh, around eight years ago, <clears throat> there was another explosion also in the, in the region of Russia. As you can see, Russia is really a big country. It's a big landmass. Uh, country in the world, so they suffer more than one hit. And that's called the Chelyabinsk meteor. It exploded in this region of uh, Siberia and kind of looked like that. 
this is the age of dash cams. So this guy was, oh, this person was driving to work presumably in the morning with a dash cam in the car, stopped at the traffic light. And as you'll observe, there's going to be a large meteor <clears throat> passing through the sky and exploding when it interacted with the atmosphere, creating light that was brighter than the light of the sun for several seconds. Quite amazing uh, event. So all of that is described in this Wikipedia page, which again, I invite you to go and read. Uh, really, really interesting information. Uh, it was a very small one, but it did injure about 1500 people. Uh, and that was during the time where they could be, could take a lot of sensor information and figure out the direction from which it arrived. And uh, it came basically from the asteroid belt, which is the region of rocks between the planets of Mars and Jupiter orbiting the sun, just like we do. And so that's another example of real things that can happen. Here is an example where the windows were shuttered uh, in the drama theater in that city, uh, which uh, most of the injuries were because of, were created by uh, uh, broken glass. Um, and here is an example of how it caused damage to buildings. Uh, they were very, very lucky that this object uh, came very, very shallow into the atmosphere. If it had penetrated much deeper, it would have caused a lot more damage and many more casualties than experienced in this explosion, which was a very, very small object. So again, I'm inviting you to go visit this page on the Wikipedia page. And then let's see here, how do I move to the next one? Okay, so let's go back to the Cineos um, webpage and see how many of these have been discovered to date. As of literally yesterday, uh, JPL updated their um, discovery statistics, and we are now at about 25,334 uh, near-Earth objects. Near-Earth meaning they did not impact us. They are not projected to impact us, but they pass just too close to our planet uh, to be to feel comfortable. So we want to keep an eye on these, uh, looking into the future just to make sure, and also to try to detect some of these into the future to see if any of these has a risk of colliding with our planet. And you can see here the rate of discovery is increasing, uh, which kind of tells us that we are still in the dark ages with respect to uh, where we are on these. Uh, let's look at uh, some of these uh, that have been discovered. The last year in 2020, they discovered 3,000 new objects that we were not aware of. And we were just very fortunate that this did not impact with us, uh, but they did make a close approach. This year, we are already up to 500. Uh, we'll see how far it's going to proceed into the end of the year. Uh, terms of looking at the really, sorry, really big ones here, those that are kilometers, kilometer and larger. Uh, these are uh, objects that can really cause global damage and really change our civilization. As we can see, we discovered most of them in the last couple of decades or so. And we are now discovering very few each year. And none has been discovered this year to date. Um, and we are monitoring each of these objects because of the potential damage they can inflict on our planet. 
Uh, none of these is threatening in the next uh, 100 years or so. So we are going to leave that risk to future generations of scientists and engineers. Maybe some of you will be dealing with this type of uh, planetary protection, but it's not something that is super urgent at this point. We just want to keep our eyes on these objects as they are discovered, sprinkling in every year. Um, we are now more concerned with those that are medium size because we are finding uh, probably in the range of five to 600 of these every year. And each of these could destroy a continent, could destroy a large country instantaneously. These are large objects with energy that is thousands of times or millions of times more than any atomic bomb that was developed by humans. It doesn't have the radiation effects, but it has the destruct, destruct, destruction effect. So we definitely want to keep an eye on this. Um, okay, let's move forward. So let's see what's going on around the planet in real time. This is uh, a snapshot of what's going on around the planet today. Today is March 6th. We have an object that is passing by our planet at a distance of about uh, seven times the distance to the moon. It is 30 to 70 meters in size, which is the size of the Tunguska object that we saw just a few minutes ago with the potential to destroy a large city anywhere around the globe. Uh, we are fortunate that this object, which was discovered this year, it was discovered earlier in 2021, uh, was just a close approach and not an actual impact. But a lot of these are just too close to feel comfortable, you know, in terms of what can we do about those type of objects? What, what kind of action, mitigation action, we could mount if we, uh, you know, discover an object that is potentially on an impact uh, collision with us. For example, let's look at this one. This one is going to pass near us in November this year, later this year. It was discovered uh, perhaps a year or so ago, uh, and it is fairly large. It's uh, 50 to 100 meters in size. It could destroy a small country like France or Texas instantaneously. And it's very close. It's just one and a half times the distance to the moon. You know, it's like you have a feeling that we live in a shooting gallery looking at this. Let's look at some interesting information about this particular object, which is called 2019XS. So it was first observed in 2012. How can it be that it was observed before it was discovered? And the reason is because all of the nighttime pictures that are taken by telescopes are archived. When a new suspect object is discovered, they go back and dig into those archive pictures to see if the object had uh, sort of, they call it a pre-discovered. And it was actually pre-discovered in the past. This is very important because this information helps us nail down uh, the orbit of the object and uh, any risk of future collision with our planet with this object. It basically just adds to the database of uh, measurements that we have on the object. So those people who like to calculate orbits of planets and spaceships and rockets would love this type of activity to calculate the, the, you know, the orbits of those objects. Um, so how do we deal with that? This, this, an object, this is an object that was discovered just uh, maybe six months before a close approach, which could be a potential impact. 
to help out how we how to deal with this type of situations, we uh, run international planetary defense conferences. And this is uh, an hypothetical impact scenario that is that are designed for the different conferences that we held over the years. PDC is the Planetary Defense Conference. The next one is going to occur next month virtually. Uh, and here is the scenario that was concocted. Everything here is obviously hypothetical. None of this is real, but it is very realistic in terms of what could happen with an object similar to what we have seen a moment ago on the chart. So they pretend that this kind of object would actually impact with our planet and we'll run a scenario over the five days of the conference with discussion groups and panels and expert uh, opinions as to what could we do, we could do about it. And so I, again, I'm, I'm inviting you to visit this uh, fantastic uh, JPL uh, page and read about it. As you can see here, when the object is discovered, the likelihood is evenly spread across the planet for any location to be impacted by the object. Just because we don't have enough measurements that would tell us exactly where the object would be impacting, if it would be. Uh, so uh, follow the conference. The conference is going to occur at the end of April and it's going to be broadcast live. Uh, so uh, keep an eye on, on that. It's going to be a fascinating uh, conference to follow through. Okay, now let's see here. How do I move to the next one, which is this one? Okay. Um, I we went back to the table of close approach, and what I've done, I filtered out those objects that are really large and made a very, very close approach with our planet uh, in all times. As you can see here, all of these are in the <clears throat> hundreds of meters in size, even kilometers in size. These are literally global effects literally global effects. And they all passed less than one times the distance to the moon starting from 1914, going all the way into the next century or two. So as you can see, we have been very fortunate so far not to be impacted by any of these very, very close approach by large objects that could change life on Earth, literally. But we do want to keep an eye on these large ones that are passing uh, in the next uh, decades and centuries. Uh, and a very interesting object is uh, this one that's going to pass at just 10% the distance to the moon. This is the altitude of our satellites. It's going to pass below our satellites in the sky and potentially be visible without any optical aid. You might be able to just see an asteroid passing uh, uh, above you uh, during, uh, during the um, moment of close approach. Uh, it's going to occur on April 13 of 2029. So just eight or nine years from now. Uh, keep an eye on that. It's going to be in the news for sure. It, an impact with death has been ruled out, but it's going to be a huge event in the news. There's already missions that are planned to be sent out to this object to monitor it and watch it. So uh, this is going to be a very, very nice event to follow through. Uh, and again, go visit this website and just do your own exploration to see what's going on there. Uh, so if an object had been discovered on impact with the Earth, what could we do to mitigate that situation? So uh, in collaboration with NASA, uh, we developed the uh, so-called 
Neo Deflection app. It's an application, it's a, it's a simulation that will help us to understand how to deflect uh, asteroids. In this case, the asteroids that are loaded to, to the tool are um, all virtual, all simulated objects, uh, but we have orbital mechanics built into the tool. We have launch vehicle performance built into the tool. And what we can do here is uh, look and see how any of those uh, hypothetical objects that one is created for the upcoming conference and the other ones just exist on, on this tool. You can pick any of these and it will tell you uh, the orbit of the asteroid, uh, the orbit of the Earth, and how to access that asteroid from the Earth via a launch vehicle, via a rocket and a spacecraft. All of this is built on the tool, and what you typically would do is that you will use our existing launch capability to move this impact location from inside the red capture circle here uh, to outside to um, avoid an impact with, the, uh, with, with our planet. As you can see here currently, the object will impact with our planet, but also the geometry currently is in favorable of being able to launch a rocket and uh, deflect the, the object, the asteroid or comet. Uh, in order to do that, we need to design a mission. And you could be a mission designer if you like system engineering and if you like to design orbits and, uh, or you like rocket science, this is the kind of tool for you you could uh, maybe change the times at which the mission uh, will uh, be launched. As you can see here, I found the solution. So now I was able to move the impact location from the red dot to the green dot here. Somebody is going to complain, that's not good. We want to move it outside of the Earth. But that's where orbital mechanics kicks in and we were able to calculate the trajectory in space that will connect the Earth and the object via a transfer trajectory. Uh, actually, take a minute. Yes. Uh, two, we have like two or three minutes left. Okay, very good. Uh, so uh, to do that, you might uh, uh, select another rocket. And with two rockets, you can see that now we are able to miss the Earth. And that's how you might design a mission. Uh, to help out with this, Aerospace Corporation has recently created a website, which again, I invite you to visit. Uh, you can read about educational tools for STEM outreach, which was one of the topics I think from the UCLA team. Uh, you can read about uh, how we engage with STEM outreach. You can look at videos that we created. Uh, you can look at uh, lesson plans that we created and you can use any of these in your outreach. Uh, we also uh, contributed to an IMAX film it's called Asteroid Hunters. The film has been released, but uh, because of the pandemic, it's not in the theaters as yet. But as soon as those theaters will uh, be uh, open, uh, you can go and see the movie. And part of the work that I do is in this movie. I'll be in the movie here. So go to this page and look at this uh, trailer. Um, and then the last item here, let's see here. So um, there are several activities here that uh, we are engaged here at Aerospace Corporation with respect to doing that. Uh, we use artificial intelligence on some of those tasks. And recently we have developed a, an upgrade of the tool here, which uh, is in this uh, other uh, aerospace website here. 
where we created a teaming version of the app. So this is, uh, we added an ability to do asteroid deflection contests. Uh, everything here is identical to the JPL version that you've seen a moment ago. But if you turn on the teaming mode, you'll be able to conduct a contest by selecting a team, either from an existing name or type in your own name, and, and then set up the campaign limits uh, by saying how many launch vehicles are available, maybe two of these and maybe one of that. And the asteroid was discovered perhaps eight years prior to impact and conduct other things here. You can set those limits. In this case, let me set one minute for the contest. And now the clock is kicking. Different groups here have the mission to move this uh, green dot outside of the red circle. So they're going to try to change those times, just like we've done here with emission design. And when they do that, they might hit a roadblock here that doesn't work. They might have to add another rocket to that. And perhaps, uh, uh, and with two rockets, we see we can do it. Uh, uh, we develop a performance metric, which will be different from team to team because there is thousands of combinations here that are possible for designing a mission. And the winner is the team with the highest performance metric. So uh, go visit this website here. And finally, uh, I want to say that Aerospace Corporation is hiring both interns and new graduates, uh, experienced positions as well. I think for this year, interns is too late because uh, the, all of the positions have been selected. But if you'd like to be considered for next year, uh, go visit our career website here. And um, so this is a picture of our interns uh, from the last few years. They work on different areas here. Let me show you if I think if you go here and hit the career page, uh, you'll see the different disciplines that we are looking for. Uh, pretty much every discipline, electronics, uh, information systems, system engineering, vehicle system, which are launch vehicles, satellites. Uh, also, we are looking for scientists, you know, chemists, physicists uh, to work in our laboratories and develop our business. Uh, if you want to manage a project, you can go to the program office and manage a group of engineers and scientists. And we are looking for students and recent graduates. So by all means, go and visit our careers page, see what requisitions are currently open. And if you are interested and available, you are welcome. And with that, uh, uh, yeah, I see a hand up question from Diana. It was an applause. Great job. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, Dr. Meta, yeah, because I think we're running out of time for the presentation, but uh, during the panel discussion, we have more time, you know, people can ask questions. And uh, um, everyone, Dr. Mena is very Mena is very passionate about, you know, helping the young generation. So uh, you're welcome, you know, to, uh, you know, please join the uh, career panel and also the breakout session, along with, you know, the, the fellow panelists and the speakers. Uh, the Dr. Mena will explain to you more about your opportunities, Aerospace Corporation, and you can get advice from him for your study and career. So uh, stay tuned and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, also come back, you know, for, for the career panel breakout session and uh, continue to enjoy the next few speakers. Thank you, Dr. Thank Manu. you. Stay in touch. Thank you. Okay, so, yes. So we are going to switch to uh, 
Mr. Uh, Bill Kelly. Uh, so let me see. Okay, I unmuted everybody out there. <clears throat> can you yeah, hear me? Yes, uh, can you, like, would you like to show your uh, re re video so we can spotlight you or you prefer to stay? No, it's all right. I, I, don't, okay. I don't mind people looking at me. Let's okay, no, no problem, no problem. Okay, so Bill uh, um, <clears throat> is, uh, uh, you know, is a great, you know, aerospace engineer. He's uh, re recently retired from Georgia Rocket Nine. He's a senior member of AIAA and uh, he retired after 19 years of service, plus 26 more years at the other uh, gray aerospace uh, corporation like Macqua, Vaco Industries, and the power companies, Babcook and Wilcox companies. Uh, he was recently, he, he, was, uh, he was our treasurer, uh, you know, last year uh, for the section. He, his experience at Babcock and Wilcox include system design and the startup testing of large steam boilers and the nuclear reactor. Yeah, like three miles island, etc. His experience at Macquarie includes small rocket engine and the ramjet testing, uh, NES, etc. And the naval weapon system <coughs> development. <coughs> His experience at Aerojet Rocket Dine includes large rocket engine system engineering, assembly and testing, RS-84, J2X, RX-25, and the system engineering for MMRTG. This is very, very exciting. You know, he'll tell you more about it. Uh, when you get a chance, and uh, many space missions are using it now, uh, and it's been a, a long time. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from New York University, and a Master of Science in uh, Nuclear Engineering from University of Virginia, and a Postgraduate Certificate in Aerospace and Aeronautical Engineering uh, from UCLA, so he's a UCLA alum alumni as well. So let's welcome Mr. Bill, Ke uh, Bill Kelly. Go ahead. Uh, Ken, I seem to have screwed up my, uh, oh, there you go. <clears throat> oh, can you uh, decrease the size? Decrease the size? Looks a little big. You mean the uh, screen? Yeah, the screen. Uh, let, me, let me see if I can do, um, let me see. Well, I, th I think what happened is this is actually controlled from your end. You, you should be able to pull, um, uh, select the views, and if you uh, uh, choose the uh, speaker view, uh, <clears throat> then you should be able to see, uh, uh, make adjustment for the screen. Oh, fit to window, yeah. All right, All right. hang on here, I'm getting close. Okay. There Sorry we go. That. Sorry for that. And... But try uh, hitting control minus. I'm sorry, what? Uh, try hitting control and minus. Control <laughs> minus. And the minus sign. Okay, I think, can everybody see that? Why don't you okay, advance by one slide? I. Okay, there you go. We got a full slide there. Is that what you want us to see? Well, I wanted to start in the one before. Yeah, I have a few introductory things. Uh, well, uh, uh, yeah, this is Bill Kelly, and I'm going to talk a little bit about resumes and interviews uh, based on my experience and what, what you need to get a job and things like that. But also, I have a few remarks about what it's like the first day of work. I've actually collected some data 
by asking a, uh, a new employee at Aerojet Rocketdyne, what's it like the first day, the first week, what do you do? And, and also I have a little information about the kind of money that people are gonna make if they get in, into their aerospace jobs or into engineering jobs in general. So uh, uh, that, uh, uh, I'm gonna have something about resumes and interviews, but maybe some of the other information is more, more interesting to people. Okay, so uh, next slide. All right, this is, I thought I'd start off by uh, showing my, uh, my own personal resume uh, at, at the size where I think it's most people want it today. Uh, uh, most people don't wanna go through four pages of uh, information. They want a succinct uh, summary of facts and uh, uh, significant information. So uh, this is kind of what I uh, had in mind. Um, uh, Ken's already gone through my educational experience, my uh, all the paper that's on my walls at home, including UCLA here locally. Uh, the work experience has been kind of varied. I've been in the nuclear power industry, which also came back to help me do something later on in my space career, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, I was involved in a lot of uh, steam boilers and I actually spent some time at the Three Mile Island nuclear plant uh, during their uh, cleanup. I was part of the crew. Um, I got into, finally got into aerospace fairly uh, uh, about halfway through my career by testing small rocket engines uh, uh, like the station keeping rocket engines for the space shuttle and, and satellite station keeping engines. I uh, worked on a Navy weapons system development uh, uh, for a time. Then I got into the larger rockets, uh, the Delta IV engine, which is RS-68, and uh, uh, the space shuttle main engine. I also worked on the SLS program, uh, which is using the SSME to uh, create the new launch vehicle. They ought to be, uh, I think they're doing the test launch next year. So that's pretty exciting. I also worked in the space electric power uh, area including uh, programming on the International Space Station. But I also did uh, um, work on the MMRTG, which you uh, may have recognized from recent history. It's the power supply for the per Perseverance rover that's just landed on Mars. It's also the power supply for the um, Curiosity rover, which has been on Mars for years now. Uh, and I bring that up because it lets me talk about papers uh, part of what you should do or consider doing for your res for your career for your resume is getting involved in writing papers, either student papers or uh, or other papers. Um, I've done about uh, ten total between nuclear power and uh, and aerospace industries, and uh, um, they um, they they show that you're different. They show that you can write an English sentence or uh, you you're capable of writing uh, uh, technical papers um, that have, uh, have value to the industry and that sets you apart from, uh, from other people. Uh, engineers aren't noted for their ability to uh, write uh, well. They spend all their time studying, techni studying uh, technical subjects and uh, they don't uh, spend enough time, I think, uh, uh, thinking about writing and documenting and uh, because that's a basic part of engineering and uh, it's documenting results and uh, 
and then spreading information. Um, so that's that's what a, a brief resume, a one-page resume, which is what a lot of people just want these days, looks like. At least it did for me uh, in my my entire career. Um, okay, let me have the next page. More about papers. This is one of the this is the paper that I was the the lead uh, author on. Which I wrote about them, uh, MMRTG. I've also done a presentation on MMRTG on this very paper for uh, uh, for AIAA a couple of times. Uh, once done at, um, uh, I think we went to Loyola Marymount uh, University and um, and uh, one one or one or two other times. So uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm advertise I'm. I'm supporting the notion that students should write papers. Uh, they should write papers for the experience. And also they're fun and you get to go to fun places, believe it or not. Um, I, uh, I wrote this, uh, the MMRTG paper for a conference in, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, that's not the funnest place on the planet, but it is uh, fun to go there. And a few other places in, uh, in the country um, for various uh, societies, American Nuclear Society and things like that. But the most interesting paper and the most exotic place I went to was a paper I wrote about system engineering for the SLS program. And they sent me to Glasgow, Scotland to the International Astronautical Congress meeting in Glasgow, uh, where I got to talk about uh, with a bunch of other NASA people about what SLS was going to do for our space launch capabilities from the planet. I think they were trying to sell, um, NASA was trying to sell the idea to European uh, uh, con uh, co companies, the idea of using SLS uh, in the future for <clears throat> the launch of big uh, um, um, telescopes, space telescopes, replacements for the, the, the Hubble and, uh, and future European space telescopes. I'm not sure that's happened yet, but that was the idea. So I got to go to exotic Glasgow, Scotland uh, um, to uh, deliver a, a paper. Um, so uh, let me have the next page. So the, the resume tips, which I kind of got into in the first couple of slides, um, there's the usual stuff. Don't forget your name, address, and phone number because they need to get back to you um, uh, when they uh, start talking about phone interviews and uh, in-person interviews and repeat interviews. Uh, they want to, you, you may want to make sure they know who you are and where you are. Uh, the education, certainly the degrees you have, also uh, honors that you have re received as during school, like if you're on the Dean's List and, uh, and uh, things like that. Uh, work experience, summer jobs and internships are very important. Uh, when you hire somebody, and I've hired people uh, in my career, uh, showing up with an internship that uh, in an area that's uh, valuable to the company you're in, you want to intern with, is uh, is uh, very impressive. It uh, it shows, says you're you're just just a student. You're uh, you're working in the industry already, it gives you a leg up. And uh, that's what you wanna do. You wanna find something that makes you unique. Uh, not just technical either. Uh, there are other things you can do that wind up being impressive to people 
potential uh, potential hires. Uh, I list Eagle Scout. I know there's a lot of controversy about the Boy Scouts these days, but uh, having uh, achieved an Eagle Scout uh, 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 award uh, still impresses people with your ability to uh, uh, complete tasks and uh, stick to something and uh, and um, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, community service is uh, is also important. It shows that you're not just uh, uh, a diehard engineer that doesn't know how to do anything else shows that you're involved in the community. Uh, internships I mentioned. Um, I, uh, next one is uh, join the USC or CSUOB rocket factories. We saw good presentations by USC and CSULB, also UCLA, very impressive about your, uh, your rocket uh, abilities to your rocket capabilities, both analytical design and uh, and fabrication. Uh, it's very impressive that the the uh, these schools are getting in um, involved with manufacturing, not just the theoretical side of things. So, <clears throat> so uh, anybody who's going to any of those schools, join the local rocket factory and get some things done and get it on your resume. It's uh, it it really helps. Uh, of course, we encourage everybody to join or start uh, an AIAA student chapter. Uh, you get the opportunities like this to interact with people who have had a aerospace or other engineering career, leaders of the industry, and uh, so it's uh, it shows you're uh, you're dedicated. Um, also, as I said, write a student paper. I believe there is a student paper. Um, uh, uh, competition that had that AIAA has every year. Uh, it, even if you don't win, uh, write a paper and participate in that, and it shows uh, shows the company that you uh, had the ability to write a student paper. Also, want to note that AIAA rules about uh, writing papers when you get them reviewed by people for a conference are fairly rigorous. I uh, especially about footnotes. Uh, before they were done with me for one of the uh, one of the papers I wrote for uh, one of the conferences I went to, AIAA uh, had me write about 25 footnotes on uh, information in um, in the paper which I had uh, accumulated, but I hadn't footnoted correctly. So they're going to be on you. For, be careful of footnotes; they're very important for writing a paper. Uh, so if you're just graduating. Don't make the resume four pages long. You haven't done four pages. I advocate uh, one page or two. I think most people people will do that. When you actually apply for a job, you these days you're probably going to uh, have to apply online um, and uh, submit perhaps a, a, a resume or some kind of letter, and then hopefully you get a call that you have a phone interview and then a, an in-person interview. That's the way it seems to be going these days. Uh, but uh, again, keep your, I, my advice is keep your resume fairly short. Uh, you, when you graduate from, um, uh, from undergraduate um, uh, college, uh, you haven't done a whole uh, enough yeah, uh, to, to make a four page resume. Um, you, uh, you need to think about one or two pages. Um, I know that the bottom that uh, I switched jobs about four different times in my career. 
So uh, my resume worked four times if you want to evaluate the kind of information I'm, I'm giving you here. Okay, um, next slide. Okay, on, on the interview itself, if you get in front of somebody, and most people want to, will ultimately want to see if you're worth anything, uh, dress to impress. But you don't need to wear a tuxedo, don't get too fancy. Engineers are typical in their, uh, uh, in their ability to avoid wearing suits and ties. Uh, I started out my engineering career a long time ago, having to wear a tie and a white shirt and uh, one of those guys. But uh, these days, uh, don't come in dungarees and, um, and sneakers, but uh, dress to impress. Uh, my personal advice is don't look bored, even if you are, they start answering questions. You're always interested in whatever your interviewer has to say and whatever question he has uh, for you. Uh, be prepared to answer the following questions. Why do you want to work here? They want to know, I uh, want you to express uh, uh, some kind of reason why you want to, why you want to work here. Uh, I uh, suggest the answers are, I always wanted to be a rocket scientist. Uh, that's the way I would have uh, interviewed with, I, that was my first job. Um, I, uh, XXX means the company you're working for. You can uh, make the statement that uh, this particular company is an industry leader and I want to work for an industry leader. Uh, I also want the another if you're working if you're intending to interview or if you're interviewing for a for a small company, uh, there's a challenge of working in a small company. It's a risky situation, uh, but uh, uh, you can tell them that when at the at the interview. Um, also, before you go in and uh, talk to a company, research them. Ask. Uh, and uh, ask good questions like, is there anybody trying to buy this company? That has to do with your livelihood, your future. And so you have a right to know if, if they're just about to get sold and, uh, and uh, whatever ne negative implications there may be for that. Uh, you wanna know about the price and uh, price earnings ratio of the stock. You wanna know the health of the stock of this company for your own personal uh, information to judge if you want to, if you want to be there. Uh, you're going to ask the question, when was your last layoff? Uh, uh, aerospace uh, companies, the aerospace industry has uh, historically been fairly uncertain about longevity. Uh, the, anymore, that seems to be less of the case, but in the early days of uh, aerospace, there used to be um, lots of uh, turnover at the aerospace companies. So you want to know that the answer to that, when was your last layoff? Um, chances are the company is not going to, what are the chances that the company is not going to be around in five years? Another question that uh, strikes home at uh, the uh, stability of the company that you're uh, interviewing with. How many company, how many employees under the age of 30? I mean, uh, is, is all their technical ability tied up in people who are just about to retire? Or do you have uh, young, young guns ready to uh, solve the world's problems? Uh, that's uh, uh, an information you, you, you'll want to know for the sake of uh, the competition you have for the positions that you're, uh, that you're going for. Um, 
I also found, uh, or I, I, I actually believe that I got my job at Aerojet Rocketdyne uh, by asking a question, are you still worried about combustion stability in a technical question? Um, when you uh, develop large rocket engines, there's a series of uh, uh, explosive uh, pressure distribution tests you have, you do inside the uh, combustion chamber for a rocket engine. And uh, it's one of the last things you do in a, in a well, not, not last, but one of the first things you do after you've had some hot fire experiences, test to see if your design is, has uh, combustion instability. It's particularly a question for large rocket engines where there's the possibility of uh, um, more possibility of combustion uh, instability. So uh, not maybe that question, but an astute technical question that, uh, that tells people you know what you're talking about or that, you're, that you uh, have uh, some knowledge of the, uh, the kind of technical area you're gonna get into. Okay, that was interview tips. Uh, next page. So what should you expect working in the aerospace industry? Well, uh, for sure, government oversight for US government contracts. NASA, uh, if you work for NASA, they will, they will uh, watch uh, and watch what's happening in your, with whatever contract you're working on and approve uh, or disapprove decisions. NASA is very big on government oversight. Also, uh, the Aerospace Corporation, Dr. Mel Moon's uh, company is uh, used by the Air Force to have a technical overview of uh, Air Force contracts. I've, I interface with those people uh, uh, for the RS-68 engine program. Uh, US Navy does the same thing to hire civilian contractors, so expect if you're working on a big contract, uh, government contracts, you're going to get oversight uh, that you'll, uh, so you have to um, uh, be prepared for that. I've mentioned uncertain longevity, um, the uh, history of the aerospace uh, industry has included lots of personnel shifting around uh, 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 when large contracts come to an end. Uh, this is particularly true of uh, uh, Air Force um, uh, contracts that uh, uh, supply jet, new jet engines or, or, um, or, or fighter aircraft or, uh, or cargo aircraft. They, uh, uh, well, there's always a, a degree of uncertainty about how long it's going to last after the contract that's uh, currently going on. Um, however, those being a little negative, uh, the most they are aerospace is about the most exciting technical area on this or any other planet. Uh, imagine working on turbojets and scramjets and rocket engines and airplanes and satellites, and like in my experience, Mars rovers. Uh, never thought I'd uh, um, be a person who has uh, knowledge of what happens on Mars when I was uh, going through college. Uh, there are good salaries in the aerospace in, and engineering companies. Um, uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, yes, Bill, we have roughly three, four minutes. Oh. Yeah, I'm almost done. I'll breeze through these. Uh, this is a, information a couple of years ago uh, about median, wor median wages for various uh, <clears throat> 
segments of the industry, various degrees. And you can see the engineering in general uh, beats any other major as far as what uh, uh, you get, you get start, you start out with or even by mid-career. You can always, uh, if you look at aerospace, they're about halfway down. Uh, starting at 64,000 in 2019, you can expect by mid-career uh, something like $100,000. Uh, next slide, Ken. This also shows that uh, even by the end of uh, by the end of your career in uh, in engineering, you're talking about uh, mid hundred hundred thousand uh, uh, dollars annual salary. So you've made a good decision by deciding to get into uh, engineering. Is uh, there is um, good money in in um, in an engineering career? Uh, next one, next again. Okay, so this is a slide I had about what do you do? I asked a, a person who I uh, uh, knew higher at Erichet Ragadine, I asked him to actually record for me what he had done on the first day, first week, and various uh, time periods in the first six months of his career. To, you can think about uh, four to five hour orientation programs. Uh, lunch with managers, managers that introduce you to your team and mentor. You got to spend a lot of time walking around uh, <clears throat> with people that you're going to work with. Uh, the, you you set up your desk and set up your computer. Uh, and at larger companies, they will have you take training courses, not just not technical training courses, but training in safety, security, proper practices, sexual harassment, and a lot of uh, other stuff, so expect that kind of thing. And every week there are intern socials. He was very grateful for that. Now, one company presentations, you learn about various uh, other sites, if there are any for a large company, and what goes on there. Next, Ken. And uh, for the first few weeks, at least this guy, who was a stress analyst, said that they, of course, learn uh, what FEA uh, finite element analysis software uh, they're using and learn the models that they're gonna, uh, gonna start using for design uh, tests for various engine work. Uh, the, he, had, he got involved with transient systems analysis, which, uh, in which he uh, learned about uh, data acquisition tools of uh, sophisticated plotting techniques and uh, plotting programs. And uh, he began working on the RS-25 program. Um, in general, uh, there were lots of videos showing a technical process. NASA wants the, you to, your technical process to be very uh, structured such that they don't lose technical uh, capabilities as somebody uh, leaves the company. It's always there if you have good process. Um, and you uh, hang around with your mentor to, to make sure you uh, uh, take advantage of his experience about what's going on here. Ken, next one. I guess that's it. You're right, that's, that's the last one. That's the last one, yeah. And I guess we'll take care of questions after everybody else is done. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, in a panel session, uh, people can ask more questions. Right. Yeah.
Thank you, Bill. This is so amazing. I, I th this, uh, your information is actually very, very helpful uh, and very up to date. And uh, this, uh, the you know, student and young people they will benefit so much, you know, from from it. Really appreciate. It. Yeah, not highly technical, just real life staring you in the face. That's most important. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right, uh, Diana says thank you. So Diana, uh, stay, you know, with us, uh, career panel and the breakout. You can uh, talk to Bill directly. Uh, and Bill is also a rocket expert, you know, in the past, whenever he went to the, our student branch account and the student just uh, went up to him, you know, for some advice for their rocket design. So stay with us. Okay, so uh, our next speaker is um, uh, Mr. Bawa, he's the president of the LA Gage. Okay, yeah, you're here. Okay, wonderful. Hello, so can you uh, like uh, unmute? Oh, just a second. No, still cannot hear from you. It's an icon at lower left. You have to float your mouse. I mean, let me do this and maybe I can, yeah, thank you Phil. I think maybe we can remind him to, do you see something pop up if we click that? Okay, it seems to be, you are unmuted but still cannot hear you. Take it easy. I see you are using the phone, but uh, I need to unmute. Let me try again. Hi, Ken, can you hear me now? Yeah, 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 wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Okay, Bauer. sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I had to get on my phone there. I understand, it's the kind of, you know, but it happened, you know, sometime. Yeah. Uh, so I'll now, just quickly, yeah? Go I was just quickly make an with, with the bio and uh, you're welcome to sell it to that. You said, uh, add more things. And actually, this is very exciting because uh, you are here from industry leaders and uh, from a different aspect, uh, perspective from the industry. So, uh, as, um, may I ask, it's a, it's a first name, sorry, but it's Joyt? Is that right? That's right, it's Joyt. It's like Joe with a T. Okay, jo Mr. Joyt Bauer is uh, president of the LA Gage Company, a family-owned aerospace and defense manufacturing company specializing in ultra-precision machine services to produce the most complex and tight tolerance hardware required for aerospace and defense industry. Known primarily for his, uh, his success in machine beryllium, um, machining beryllium, one of the only two major suppliers in the United States, 
LA gauge demonstrate American uh, precision at its best, holding machines tolerance to 40 uh, billionths of an inch um, and uh, polishing optical components uh, to the billions of an inch. LA gauge is the key supplier for every major defense uh, program that requires beryllium, beryllium components. For example, uh, they make gardens and a targeting system component for uh, F-35 jet, Apache helicopter, Global Hawk surveillance drone, uh, standard missile uh, Dash 3, uh, nuclear uh, Trident missile, and a nuclear uh, Minuteman, uh, Miniman uh, missile. In two, uh, in then in 2019, LA Gage was the proud recipient of Lucky Martin Missile and Fire Control Small Business Award uh, for four critical support um, to their programs. Uh, put simply, when uh, companies such as Lucky Martin, Raytheon, and Boeing have critical and difficult parts uh, that they that are beyond the capabilities of other manufacturers, they came to uh, LAK. So this is really fantastic. You know, when I talked with Ross, and I was really fired up. You know, we are trying to have articles event with you. So now the president of the company and uh, and he's a Harvard graduate, uh, very good in business uh, operation and management. Uh, will talk to us and uh, please uh, stay. Uh, you know, and uh, listen to what we're going to be talking about. Thank you so much, Mr. Bob. Go ahead. And now you turn it off again. How's that? Are we Are we good? Yeah. That's better. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, just you know, let me know if there's some. It looks like we're having a lot of audio issues, so. I'll try to be efficient. Um, I apologize for that. I, mean, I actually have a few videos I wanted to share, but I think that's some next level tech work uh, in this situation. So I might have to skip that. Well, um, you, know, you can try if you want. We have some time. You can try. We'll, we'll give it a shot, but uh, I don't want to waste too much of folks' time. And I, I can surely share and talk to people in the panel discussions if, if, if it doesn't work out. Um, so again, thank you for the introduction. Um, I just want to kind of set the stage a little bit of what uh, I would like to bring to the table here because the presentations so far have been extremely well-rounded and much more technical than I think what I'm going to be bringing, but hopefully it's valuable. So I want everyone to, who's here to just picture themselves. It's 6 a.m. on a Monday morning. Uh, they're walking into a, you're walking into a large facility, windowless. You open these big steel doors and you switch on some humming lights and you see a sea of five axis Mitsui Sikis and Mazak lathes. You're walking through, you see machinists all in their coats starting to turn on the machines. You grab a cup of coffee. Everyone's a little dazed and a little tired, um, but as you look around, you're seeing people turning on machines, walking inside machines sometimes to set certain components up. And then you sit and, and as you're walking through, you look up and you see a very large screen with a plant layout with different color codes, red, yellow, green across the plant with part numbers and part names that you know are ultimately going into deep space, into tactical systems, into strategic systems, weather satellites, and even nuclear fusion reactors. No one else can really understand it from the part numbers that you, you see up there, but you know that when it's green and that part number is there, you are producing something that is ultimately going to be moving 
humanity forward. As you continue to walk, now you walk into the offices and the buzzing kind of stops. The kind of the smell is a little different. It's not that much of a machine shop. And now you see a lot of engineers sitting glued to their, uh, their computers, looking at 3D models, having a list of instructions that they're building. And the only time they're looking away from their computers when they're looking down at a specification, a cue note, or a drawing from a customer to make sure that they're looking at the correct data and the correct, the correct approach to ultimately produce a part to achieve mission success. And just 10 minutes after that, after seeing all the people on the machines, all the people in front of their computers, your phone just goes off the hook. We're in California. Our biggest customers are all on the East Coast. They're three hours ahead of us, and they're now calling you and asking you, where, where are we with our batch of parts? This is the time that we're going to have the next, the next order coming through. Are you guys ready? Oh, and by the way, our data isn't matching up with yours. We need to get with your engineers ASAP to start lining up the inspection, the inspection data. And that is a typical Monday in a small business in the aerospace and defense industry here in America. Uh, it is an industry I'm very proud to be part of. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about what that is like in detail and why you should consider looking at smaller businesses, suppliers uh, in the aerospace and defense industry, because it's those suppliers who are really bringing the design to life. And that's a very, very exciting uh, and fulfilling trade uh, if, you so choose, if you so choose it. So as, as uh, Ken mentioned before, my name is Joe Fowla. I'm the president of a company called LA Gage here in Los Angeles, actually in Burbank, next to Burbank Airport. We do ultra-precision machining of exotic materials for the aerospace and defense and space industry. Um, we're most known for our work in beryllium, and I want to kind of take a quick deep dive on why beryllium is so, uh, such an incredible metal um, when it comes to producibility uh, and performance in various environments. Um, so we are one of the very few companies in the country that machine beryllium or the uh, aluminum beryllium alloys. Uh, and the reason that is so important and the reason we're using that material so often is because it highlights our capabilities in holding extremely tight tolerances. So when Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, have an extremely complex part and no one else can make it, they usually come to us and they usually choose beryllium because that is the material that showcases the tight tolerances. And when I say tight tolerances, when it comes to machining, we're talking about 40 millionth of an inch uh, tolerances, plus or minus. Uh, and then when it comes to electro-optics and optical polishing, we're talking on the order of about 20th wave. So we can create, we can produce metal optics that support weather satellites, targeting systems, and even the NASA James Webb telescope in deep space. So that's what we do. That's our bread and butter. And what makes it such an interesting environment and something to consider as you look at the sea of opportunities, uh, it's an interesting environment because we provide high value, but ultimately low volume uh, uh, batches of parts to the industry. And that means that when you have a factory with so many different parts uh, 
changing and that product mix changing all the time, production engineers have a very complex problem ahead of them of figuring out how to make all those parts ship on time with the right specifications uh, being completed. And so when you think about uh, suppliers and uh, the supply chain for these large for these large OEMs such as Lockheed Martin. Think about the complexity that they work, work under if you're an engineer working for them, and also think about the opportunities that that are there for you as an engineer, whether you're a mechanical engineer or a production engineer, to solve complex problems every day because the product mix and the environment is constantly changing. If you think about what kind of environment you want to work in. You can, you can think about larger companies that have a bit more stability but are less dynamic. Or you can think about smaller companies that, as Bill kind of mentioned, you want to be asking about their stability, their long-term long perspectives. But given the needs and given the limited resources that the small company has, you end up having a jack-of-all-trades approach, a generalist approach to your experience. And you're able to basically cover anything uh, that the company needs. So you could be an engineer, but then you could also be focusing on quality inspection. You can be focusing on contractual notes, or you can be on a machine uh, programming, programming for a particular operation. So it's a very exciting environment, and it's something I really, I really think everyone should consider as they move forward and graduate um, from UCLA and UC uh, and the Cal State Long Beach and USC, of course. Can't forget you guys. Um, one of the other things that I want to mention about working in uh, an environment such as ours is even though it is a very small environment, uh, it is really fun to look at where our parts ultimately go. And Ken, this is going to be my first attempt to show a video. Uh, so let's give that a shot. And again, if it doesn't work, we can just keep on moving. Yeah, basically open it first and uh, put it on the desktop and use the share screen. There's a share screen button on Zoom and point it to that uh, video screen. Missile that is uh, that is launched uh, to take down the incoming missile has it only uses kinetic energy. There are no explosives on it. So if you can imagine, it must be precise because that is all it has to knock an anti missile uh, to knock a missile out of the sky. Um, it is incredibly exciting, but you can also imagine incredibly difficult and uh, requires precision at a level uh, uh, across an entire supply base that is extremely difficult to hold over months, years, and decades of a program. Um, so we're, we're baked into that, and we take uh, that responsibility that we have to heart, uh, and so do our machinists and so do our engineers. Um, so I just wanted to kind of lay out there for you what, what, the, uh, what the ultimate impact is for any of these kind of jobs because sometimes it can be hard to see, especially in your first job out of college, to know how you're, how you're impacting uh, mission success uh, for our country and when it comes to other explorations for humankind. Uh, the, next bit, the next thing I want to tell you a little bit about is the uh, material, beryllium, that we work in. Um, because I think as you look at suppliers, different suppliers in the aerospace and defense industry, you're going to see that there's a lot of niches that are incredibly interesting uh, and very different. And you have these subject matter experts who are really, really good at gold coating or powder coating 
or heat treating and thermal cycling. And uh, one of our, our passion is doing machining of complex features on a material like beryllium. Now, I've been saying beryllium a lot, and the reason I want it, uh, the reason I'm highlighting it is because it has incredibly unique properties. Um, first off, in terms of weight, which as we all know, is the grand prize in terms of keeping costs low. Uh, in terms of weight, beryllium is the go-to material. Um, the problem is, is how expensive beryllium is, and that's one limiting factor. But uh, it's roughly 25 to 30% lighter than aluminum, uh, depending on the grades of aluminum you're comparing it to and the grades of beryllium you're comparing. Uh, my favorite uh, aspect of, of beryllium is that it has, it has an extremely low coefficient of thermal expansion. Um, so I have a few of the figures here. If you look at aluminum, it has 13, it is 13.1 micro inches per, uh, per degree Fahrenheit uh, as a coefficient of thermal expansion. So 13.1. Stainless steel is a little bit better with nine micro inches per degree, per degree Fahrenheit. But beryllium is 6.7 micro inches per degree Fahrenheit. So it really can hold all the tolerances and all the features no matter what temperature changes it's seeing whether it's in a nuclear fusion reactor that we've supplied, where the inside of that torus can reach eight times hotter than the sun, or it can be in deep space in NASA's uh, James Webb telescope, uh, also a telescope that we've provided parts for, uh, that's obviously reaching extremely low temperatures. Most of those programs are relying on optics, so metal optics and beryllium optics, to bring back images or to target uh, certain uh, to target certain areas, especially if we're talking about strategic systems. Those are all using uh, metal optics, and beryllium is perfect to make sure that if I'm trying to tilt the mirror a few arc seconds one direction, it's actually going to move precisely the distance that I want it to move. Um, so that's the way we achieve mission success for um, one of the videos that I just mentioned here, but there are many others. If we think of UAVs, uh, the, like the Global Hawk program, or the new F-35, all, all have targeting pods that require extreme precision and the cooperation and coordination across a huge supply base um, that is rarely seen when you're just looking at the Lockheed Martin logo or the Raytheon logo. The last thing I want to say about beryllium, other than it's very light, it has a low coefficient of thermal expansion, uh, is it is not very dense. Uh, it's 30% less dense than aluminum, uh, and that means that, again, it, it helps us in terms of weight, but it also has very unique properties when it comes to medical devices. So one thing that is very unique about beryllium, having only four electrons, uh, and being very, very light, uh, having only two electrons close to, cl close to the nucleus, X-rays uh, do not get absorbed by the beryllium material. So one of the biggest programs that we're on uh, in the medical device industry is creating beryllium windows for all the X-rays for Philips and Siemens. Uh, whenever you're at the doctor's office or the dentist's office, uh, you can expect that there's beryllium uh, guiding, the, guiding the window inside of the x-ray machine. Uh, so 
the vast amount of applications uh, in this material makes it extremely interesting uh, and makes it fun as a production engineer or even an aerospace engineer to know that there is so much applicability in the types of designs that you're that you're creating uh, on this material that could be in very other uh, that could be used in a lot of other industries. I've already named energy and uh, medical devices. So uh, that's what gets us excited. That's what gets us out of bed every day. Uh, and the, the next thing I want to tell you about is even though the end product is extremely exciting and we're very proud of it, the day-to-day -day is extremely exciting as well. So some of the things that we, uh, that, that we can expect when we're walking in day in, day out in our factory uh, is that we are dealing with extremely complex problems, not only from a design standpoint and a customer relationship standpoint, but also, as I said before, from process flow standpoint. So what we've developed at our company, for example, uh, we have something we call gauge analytics. And what gauge analytics does for us is it takes all the complex planning of all the different part numbers that we are processing through our shop and schedules it in a customized scheduling software across all our labor resources and all our machine resources and our inspection resources. And so we do a simulation of how we're going to be managing all this product through our shop. Sometimes the simulation is going to give us answers that we don't like, that, hey, the simulation is telling us we're going to be three months late on this if we don't change something. It'll never give us a perfect answer. So we then have to use that data to coordinate with our engineers on how we're going to change our planning. We need to coordinate with our suppliers, coordinate with our customers, with Raytheon and Boeing and the like. Uh, and all of that coordination is an incredibly strong, strong skill set to have uh, beyond your technical skill, skill set as an engineer. And you really get exposure to that as you get to use systems, uh, systems like the one I just described. So if you, can go, if you can imagine, we have a simulation software that's showing us how we're supposed to run the shop. It's going to tell us all the different reasons why we can't achieve our, uh, the goal we intend. We then have to make assumptions and change things around, negotiate with different people. And then we have to track actions. So then we also have proprietary software that monitors our machines, what different status they're in, if there's an error, uh, if the machinist needs some help, uh, if a program needs to be tweaked, et cetera. Uh, so we are constantly looking at our simulation. We're looking at the machine monitoring data. And then finally, with our, customer and, with our customers and internally, once we ship a product, we look at our actuals. Now, how do we process improve next time around? What you will soon learn to find, especially if you're working in the larger OEMs, the cost pressure is tremendous. And year over year, all of these programs are looking for process improvement. And that process improvement ultimately comes down to companies like LA Gage and what we can figure out on the floor in cutting the materials 30% faster, 10% faster. And so when we think about our company, we don't think of ourselves as just a hardware company or a machining company. Internally, we also think of ourselves as a software company. Uh, and that means we're able to customize software, use it to our advantage, and also use it to scale up our operations so we can get bigger, more prosperous, and into more interesting projects. So that's also what's very interesting about being in this industry, uh, being able to work in this kind of technical environment, being able to work on technical projects, 
and to know that end result, as Bill stated, as Bill stated in the previous presentation, the end result is the most are the most interesting projects uh, on the face of the planet and beyond. Um, so, with that, uh, I want to move on uh, to just a couple thoughts, uh, of more closing thoughts uh, of of how to think about getting into this industry. Whether you're working at a supplier like LA Gates, we are hiring. We're always looking for smart people to, who are willing to learn the trade. Um, you can look us up at lagage.com, and you can also talk to me during the panel events. But I just want to close with a few closing thoughts in general about getting into your career in your 20s, especially as an engineer. Um, there are two pieces of advice that I think at some point I was given, but maybe didn't take as seriously as I should have. Um, but I'd like to relay those two pieces of advice to you. The first is having patience. Whether the, the beauty of working in some large companies and small companies in this industry is you're going to get a lot of exposure to a lot of things. And whether you know exactly what you want to do or have no clue what you want to do, I think the approach is the same, which is take on whatever is given to you. Take on the stuff that you don't want to do. There is, there is overhead and there are tasks in every job that you don't want to do. It's, uh, it's, you, you can't escape it. And so I would take that as you leave college and go into your first few jobs, take those as learning opportunities and know that Right now, you are trying to get a lay of the land. You're trying to understand all the different aspects of how a business runs and how a, a project is completed on time with good quality. Uh, then you're going to start sharpening. You're going to start rounding out all of the ex experiences you've had as you move on five, ten, years, fifteen years later in your experience. So I would just highly recommend having patience and taking all the tasks that are given to you uh, in, good, in good speed. Because whatever, remember that whatever strengths you have, any strength a person has also has an inherent weakness on it. And the vice versa is true. Any weakness you feel you have, there is a, there is a strength associated with, that, with it as well. So you can't rely on your strengths. You have to know that that is also bringing out some weaknesses, and you probably want to test yourself on those weaknesses as well. And taking the tasks from more experienced people in the industry is a really great way to do it. So I just think that's an incredibly important mindset as you go into your first few jobs. The last, uh, the last piece of advice, which is related um, but slightly different, is uh, still also goes to mindset. And that is the team, company, and customer mindset before oneself is always going to pay off in the long run. Whether that company has its own issues or cultural issues, you will figure that out over time and you will make the right decision for yourself. But if you are always thinking about company, customer, program first, everyone will notice whether they say it or not and you will move ahead in the long term. And I, just from my vantage point, um, when we see that in our employees, they might not know that we see that, but we do and they are, they're rewarded uh, efficiently and effectively. So with that, uh, I am more than happy to give uh, more um, perspective or answer more questions during the panel. I hope this was a useful perspective, a little different from the other presentations, 
Uh, and thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mr. Power. This is amazing. You know, that's exactly what uh, the young people would uh, need, and uh, very, very. And, and I just let uh, you know. Uh, hopefully, you're okay because the session is being recorded. You know, uh, so if you uh, don't feel comfortable, let me know. We can remove it. Otherwise, we'll post it on our website so more people can watch it. Uh, if it's okay. If not, we can remove it. No, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, we might have to remove the uh, video. Video. I, I know. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. I'll check with you. Yeah. yeah. But I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, um, oh, greatly. That's yes, amazing. We can't post that online. Oh, of course, can. understand, understand. Okay, so uh, now we are, uh, yeah, moving to the panel, career panel. Uh, this panel is uh, uh, to uh, give advice to the student and student can ask questions. And uh, that will be followed by the breakout session with uh, each of the individual um, uh, speaker panels for more, uh, you know, deeper conversation uh, separately, privately. So okay, so uh, now we'll bring up the uh, the panelists. Of course, you know, Joy, you are one of them, and uh, then that's uh, we have uh, Phil. Let me put it in. Uh, if you and Jennifer, yes, yes, Jennifer, thank you. Yeah, if you turn on your video, then we will be able to spotlight you. Uh, yes. Oh yes, thank you, Phil. Yeah, that's that's right. Phil, uh, uh, Phil, can you? Turn on. If you don't want to turn your face, you can kind of do in the virtual background and just cover your camera or something. No, there I am. That's okay. <clears throat> okay, thank you. You guys need to know you. how old I am. No, you're young. Uh, okay. okay, Dr. Melamed. And uh, I think we have Phil and the Dr. Claire Leon. Let's see. Dr. Professor here. Okay. Uh, uh, Professor Leon, can you kind of turn on your camera so we can add you to the spotlight? Okay. Hello. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Hello, hello. Nice to see you. Here, here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, okay, so do we miss someone? I think we, Phil uh, is here. So let's see. So still, yeah, Mr. Cook is not here. Um, Sina, who is Sina? Let's see. Sina, where is Sina? Sina, could you turn on your uh, camera so we can add you to the spotlight? Yeah. If, okay. If you don't, yeah, yeah. If you don't want to show your face, you can cover it with. Oh, that's the okay. That's okay. Can you guys see me? Yes, I'm going to add to the spotlight. Yes, yes, wonderful. Yeah, we have wonderful panel here. Just double check if uh, Mr. Cook is here. Uh, yeah, he's, he's in Texas, so he might be a little bit. Uh... All right, so I think uh, he, I don't see him right here, but whenever he joins, we'll add him. Uh, now he's an engineer, he contracted with Lockheed Martin. So I was trying to get him to share with, with uh, his uh, experience. Okay, so thank you very much for everyone. We have a great panel today. So uh, we'll have a chance for you to ask uh, uh, your, your question. You know, uh, the, 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 those panels, very, very uh, professional experience and aim to help you. Uh, so, this, so you can learn that from them. So uh, I think because some of the speaker, we already have the uh, introduction, so people kind of more familiar. So uh, then the, uh, I think Dr. Clearion and uh, uh, attorney Jennifer Perdigal 
has not been uh, speaking. So let's start with them for the introduction. I, I will start something very quickly. So you are welcome to just uh, self-introduce it. And then we'll go uh, turn, turn around and just quickly uh, say something. So uh, Dr. Claire Leon uh, started her career at Hughes Space Communication Group in 1979. She gained experience across the company through stations and increasing responsibility in system engineering and pro program management. And uh, she was promoted to vice president of navigation and communication system within Boeing in 2008, responsible for the Air Force satellite programs as well as a number of classified programs. She transitioned to vice president of national programs later in 2008, where she led the program, uh, the program turnaround for a critical ACAT-1 program on the customer contractor responsibility watch list. Uh, that became a high performance program delivered outstanding operational capability. She also transitioned the uh, national space and communication program from a cost plus to fixed price in response to customer affordability concerns. Uh, she uh, retired from Boeing in 2013 as vice president of national programs. Uh, Dr. Leon became a member of the senior executive service in the Air Force as the director of the Launch Enterprise Directorate at the LA Air Force Base, California. In 2014, she was responsible for buying and launching rockets for the DOD, as well as leading the transition to the next generation of the launch systems. She is currently running the graduate program in space system engineering in Loyola Marymount uh, University LBMU, uh, as well as consulting for SAIC and inside out uh, learning. Uh, LMU was uh, the school university that uh, Bill already mentioned. She, uh, he gave a presentation of MMRTG with a uh, uh, student, Dr. Leon there. Uh, and Dr. Leon's education background includes PhD, executive manage management, uh, director school of business, uh, CGU, Claremont, California, 2010, master of business administration, UCLA, Los Angeles, California, 1995, Masters of Management, University of Redlands, uh, California, 1986. Uh, Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering, uh, George Washington University, uh, Washington, D.C., 1979. Uh, she's consulting uh, uh, service uh, per, per, uh, to per, perform management consulting for inside-out learning and SAIC and possibly additional technical management companies. Tasks including uh, executive presentation support, coaching, strategic planning, uh, feedback on management approach for resolving challenging program uh, problems, as well as supporting two independent program review uh, teams. And uh, they are trying to uh, establish uh, a new AW chapter there. So uh, uh, folks here can uh, interact with her, uh, you know, for uh, getting some um, uh, advice and uh, information. And uh, the attorney, Jennifer, um, you know, uh, just quickly goes through, and uh, you are welcome to introduce yourself. Uh, attorney Jen uh, Jennifer Perigal is a partner and co-chair of uh, Trester's Transportation Practice Group. Her practice includes insurance coverage and the defense as well as advisory matters. Jennifer's insurance coverage experience, experience includes insurance coverage analysis and the insurance litigation involving various aviation related policies. Her defense litigation is, is experience involves a wide range of matters including the defense uh, of wrongful deaths, personal injury and the property damage claims arising out of premises, aviation accidents, airport operations, and the products liability. Uh, Jennifer Fuller pro provides cons counseling in connection uh, with FAR compliance, uh, risk management, and aviation contracts. Jennifer has trained uh, training and experience with employment law matters, including FEHA uh, claims and the wage and hour matters. 
she's a licensed pilot. You know, we want to inspire everyone and uh, enjoys helping young women uh, pursue aviation related career. That's perfect. Uh, she earned her JD from uh, Pepperdine University School of Law and current work, uh, currently work out, uh, works at a trusted Los Angeles office. Uh, so for her work, not only she's involved with aerospace, she actually uh, has a customer with a major aerospace company, but herself has a great passion for uh, aviation, aerospace, and herself is a, a model, uh, also the Dr. Leon model for uh, women professional. Uh, you know, pursue her professional career. So uh, that's um, uh, so. So I think that's uh, guess. Uh, so maybe we should do this. Um, um, so uh, if any question, you know, audience, please uh, just raise a hand. So I think the first question, may, uh, and when you start, and uh, make sure you also quickly self introduce yourself uh, just briefly and uh, say whatever you like. But the first question is very obvious. Is uh, you know, like uh, today, UNLV, they are severely impacted by uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, you see, you know, uh, 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 Aerospace Corporation obviously has uh, some kind of a responding uh, strategy on this. So they keep doing very well. And uh, Mr. Bawa, you show the picture of your factory, you know, uh, uh, any kind of COVID-19 kind of impact and uh, your company is hiring and, uh, you know, how to ensure you know, the uh, employees, you know, safe and, uh, you know, our country. So, uh, so kind of COVID-19 impact on aerospace and uh, uh, for your school, your company, or, uh, you know, or, or flying, you know, how, how does that affect is any suggestion to the uh, students and the, the attendees? So um, maybe we should let, uh, 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 you know, people just uh, join, go first. So how about Dr. Leong, uh, would you like to start? Sure, sure. So I think, I mean, COVID's pretty profoundly affected the entire world, right? So I think the first thing is to recognize that this is an unprecedented time. And you'll remember, you know, people who have lived through this or are old enough to remember will remember it for the rest of their lives. It's just a fundamental um, challenge for the world between family members that have become ill or have lost their lives or friends or um, the lockdowns. Um, so with respect to Loyola Marymount, um, you know, obviously a very profound change. I remember giving a lecture right before spring break and asking this group of freshmen, you know, well, so who's traveling over spring break? And every hand, I mean, almost every hand shut up. And uh, I never saw them in person again. And I, you know, haven't to this day. And so, um, so over the course of spring break, the other faculty members and I ended up having to flip our classrooms from, you know, synchronous in person into asynchronous. Um, and my class was dispersed around the country. There was one student from Siberia who um, ended up quarantining for a couple of weeks. We kept trying to reach him and couldn't. And finally, he did reach back to say that he had been in, you know, in lockdown and, you know, couldn't keep up with anything. And honestly, we've not heard from him. But we had students in uh, Jakarta, Monaco, Rio. It was sort of fun from that standpoint. And we kind of coped by having office hours, but all of the classes went asynchronous. So we, we videoed the classes and then posted them. Uh, we still had students do group projects, so that was good. But we also had office hours and it just gave us an opportunity to keep in touch with students but, um, and, uh, and kind of take the pressure off. So. You know, I know I've also been doing some consulting for the Air Force, um, and so the you know the rules for entering buildings is you know wearing masks, minimum number of people in conference rooms. So people are learning how to survive. But 
So anyway, I just, again, I think it is important to acknowledge it is a, you know, a monumental, um, let's hope once in a lifetime event that we're all learning to cope with. And sometimes knowing that something's that big can help bring the stress down. But I, I do think it has created tremendous amount of stress with students of all ages from kindergarten through college. Um, but I think it's important to have some optimism that we will get through this. This is going to be behind us. And it's, you know, every week that passes, it feels like it's getting a little lighter and a little more manageable. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. Yeah, you're very, very good at the psychological impact. So uh, any words, you know, few words advice for students uh, graduating, looking for a job during this, you know, tough pandemic time? Um, I don't really think it's any different than any other time. Use your network. Don't count on just applying to jobs online. Um, you know, figure out who knows who knows who and see if you can get, you know, your name in. All companies, um, all the big aerospace companies at least have an online system where you have to apply online, even if you have a connection inside. But what I try to do to help people is, and sometimes I've held, you know, even Zoom meetings where we pull up companies' websites and look for different types of jobs. So if your job, if your degree is mechanical engineering, don't limit yourself to just applying to jobs in mechanical engineering. Look at things that are related, like, and again, if you're, I'm kind of a space geek, but you know, attitude control test. Test is my favorite place for students to get started working with hardware. That's kind of how I learned. I don't know, that's where I got my good start was, uh, I called my cable dragging days. But um, so apply to lots of different types of jobs, but also, so again, what I try to do is help students find other job categories than just their strict name of degree. Um, you know, systems engineering, test engineering, production management, um, process control, material processes, DPA, you know, dep again, depending on what your degree is, but, you know, go broad, but then also try to find some people inside the company to say, hey, do you know anybody who can look out for my resume? Um, the other thing that's important is read the job description and then make sure your resume has every key word. So if, it, if it's an attitude control job, your resume needs to say attitude control. Or if you think you might want to do tests, then make sure test is in the job. Just, you know, like I'd love to have an opportunity to work in test. Make sure that the keywords in your resume uh, match the keywords in the job description, which means you need to tune your resume to every job you apply to. Excellent. Actually, yeah, very good. Actually, I'm um, sorry, uh, Sina actually uh, forgot to introduce you, but let's go with Jennifer and next to you will introduce you, uh, Sina. Uh, sorry for that. Sir. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Okay. Uh, so uh, uh, Jennifer, yeah, uh, you, you're in, in the um, uh, attorney kind of different, but you are pursuing also kind of aviation aerospace uh, passion and your work is highly related. Uh, to aerospace as well. I, you know a lot of inside thing for aerospace. So, uh, you know, could, could, could you, I know you, your office has been impacted by the COVID-19. So can you tell us about uh, how, uh, you know, this industry coped with COVID and also for, for example, for you, how does that affect you, you know, uh, being as a pilot? <laughs> how does that prevent you from enjoy the uh, fun of aviation? And you can share with us the fun of aviation, those things for people, especially people who want to, but there are quite still uh, many students that want to become pilot and also they are, they are building airplanes, you know? Well, first on the professional side, um, and I think uh, Dr. Leong, uh, she hit on this uh, to continue networking. 
and I think that's such an important part of uh, getting jobs and getting into the career and uh, exactly where you want to be. And I, I think that's been the challenge of COVID uh, partially of how do we network in this field? Uh, a lot of the conferences I've always attended, uh, like uh, there's a air law symposium and you know all the, they're all aviation related things. And you know, a lot of them are just uh, all day lectures and you tune in, you tune out, but there's no networking. There's no, um, there's no back and forth. Um, but then there's another organization, the International Aviation Women's Association. And that one, they actually did a great job. They did, uh, they did breakout se sessions uh, where they would kind of randomly assign uh, industry people with uh, attorneys and consultants. And so you got a chance to meet uh, different people and actually communicate with them. And the International Aviation Women's Association, it's an international organization. So uh, it's a little odd because for us, it was like, I think it was 5 a.m. in the morning and other people, it was a uh, normal time because I think it was uh, technically in London this year uh, or Singapore, I can't quite remember. So that's where they did the baseline. But, uh, but it was a great experience because, you know, normally we see each other at the annual conference. We couldn't do that this year. And we still got the chance uh, to communicate directly with people, meet new people and uh, network. So when you are looking at networking opportunities, uh, I would look for the ones that do have uh, a social component to it um, or a networking component where you actually get a chance to sit there and talk one-on-one -on -one or even in a small group about four to five people. And that gives you a good way to meet people uh, and, um, and increase your network uh, rather than just going to lecture sessions where you don't actually People might not even know you, you came. Uh, your, your name might pop up on the side, but otherwise you really it, you might learn more about other people, but you haven't established connection there. So I think in COVID, um, I think that's been kind of my major challenge is finding those activities where I could keep in touch with my clients, um, you know, continue business development and, uh, and keep on going. Um, on the flying aspect, uh, I have to say it's been a great time to, for general aviation uh, because I think initially uh, nobody knew what was going on and uh, the skies were pretty much open. So uh, I think people, it started to fill up again, but uh, from that standpoint, um, you know, if you already had your license and it was all, uh, it, was, uh, um, it was a good way to kind of be able to do something and get out of the house without, uh, Coming overly exposed, so. Yeah, this is fascinating, and I can I can tell you we have a couple of uh, um, you know uh, uh, women or young young uh, lady uh, professionals and uh, or, or student. They are really um, inspired. You know, you know they want to become pilots and they study aerospace engineering. You know, really very. Uh, so uh, this is very good advice. You know, for for you to sort of during the pandemic. Okay, so we'll, we'll have more questions come back to, to you and Dr. Leon. Uh, so, um, so the next is because Sina was uh, also not speaking, you know, uh, um, so let's introduce him. So uh, Mr. Sina uh, Abertorabi uh, is an experienced engineer, electrical engineer, uh, communications engineer and astronautical engineer with uh, demonstrate 12 years of industry 
uh, his, his history of wor working, teaching, and learning in the interdisciplinary areas of electrical engineering, communication systems, telecommunications, and aerospace engineering. Uh, is skilled in astronautics, spacecraft systems, deep space communication coding, um, digital space communications, algebraic coding, satellite communication, wireless communication, mobile communication, radar signal processing, RF systems, antenna, and microwave engineering. Oh, these are all <laughs> hot topics, you know. Sina uh, has been part-time teaching faculty at CSUN. Uh, in case you don't know, it's Northridge, uh, Cal State uh, yeah. Northridge, yeah, Department of Electrical Engineering. Okay, so Sina, so how do you think? You know, you, now you, you're working in a different uh, area, but uh, can you tell us more you, your experience and how you give uh, advice to, to students, young people, you know, cope with the COVID-19 and efficiently and, um, you know, overcome the difficulties to find possible opportunities or advance their careers and your experience you now. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, thanks for the explanation. <clears throat> so yeah, basically pandemic took a really uh, big toll on everyone, especially on academia. So a lot of the students are miserable, you know, going back and forth between virtual meetings with their professors, advisors, uh, obviously it's pretty hard. And in fact, I was a um, person, I was involved in a flight training school myself. And ever since the pandemic started, I wasn't able to finish my flight training, unfortunately. Uh, I'm sure Jennifer can uh, probably talk about this issue. <laughs> have you heard? Have, have you heard about uh, about the issue, Jennifer? Like, I think most of the flight training schools are uh, ceased as of now. Uh, no, actually, I, I don't. Uh, where are you located? Oh, that was back in Glendale in Los Angeles. Now I'm in the Bay Area. Oh, okay. I know um, all our local. Um, uh, I, I fly out of Hawthorne Airport. Uh, all the Torrance and Hawthorne Airport schools are all back open. Oh, they're back open, okay. And I believe Long Beach as well. And they've actually been open since uh, quite some time. Okay, so yeah, because anyway, I stopped going back to the flight training school. But for uh, yeah, for uh, students, uh, my advice would be um, pretty much um, like everyone else has mentioned. Uh, I would strongly um, urge the students to, you know, enhance their network of people, you know, their circle of friends through socializing events, you know, events like AIAA or, uh, you know, there are tons of different events uh, nowadays online. And, but uh, more interestingly, I think from what I know from um, so many industry leaders uh, these days, it's better to have like an internal reference uh, through your uh, network or connections. So if you get an internal reference, your odds of uh, resume being picked up and selected is drastically higher than just like, you know, applying electronically. Because when you apply electronically, as um, Claire mentioned, it's, you know, it's somehow, you know, you have to kind of pick up a very right, you know, corrected version of your resume. And it's, uh, personally, I wouldn't suggest to, uh, I know like, you know, uh, Claire said that I wouldn't suggest to, you know, update your, maybe you can update your resume a little bit, but I wouldn't suggest to change your, uh, let's say your areas of expertise because every job position or, you know, every job category has its own, you know, descriptions, right? So I understand that. But to me, that's, that's you know, that's going to be a little bit, it's like a hit or miss. But uh, I think what Claire meant was, uh, I think she just meant, you know, the keywords. The keywords are, should be fine. And she's absolutely correct because 
when you pick up the correct keywords, you know, this because you know uh, these companies, you know, they're um, the way they select like good resumes is based on machine learning systems. So they have this like you know computer screening. So technically, a human eye is not going to get your resume checked up. So the best thing to go is, as Claire said, is to um, update your resume, but try to be more, um, try to be, uh, try to have like some dignity and honesty. You know, you don't want to put put on like so many areas of expertise, you know, that you have no, you know, you have, you don't have knowledge in, because, you know, in your phone interview or your on-site interview, you know, you might be asked, like, for example, what have, uh, what have you been doing as a wireless communication engineer, like for this specific company? So you have to explain, you know, yourself uh, pretty effectively. But um, going back to the LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn is the best uh, network in terms of socializing and getting connected to you know, industry leaders and, you know, especially aerospace engineers. Um, and it's best to maybe, you know, you can send, if you find someone, let's say working at JPL, maybe it's best to introduce yourself. You know, don't be shy. You can always, you know, send email or um, messages to people on LinkedIn and just try to introduce yourself. And, you know, as time goes by, you know, you can, get the conversation going and maybe, you know, you can ask for, I don't know, like, because of the COVID uh, restrictions, I don't know if people really feel uh, right to go out these days, but you can always even ask, like, you know, I would be more interested, you know, to, you know, if you have some time, you know, to go out with you sometimes, you know, maybe we can get a coffee or just maybe uh, you can also mention about your own interests, you know, uh, your, basically your uh, overlapping interests, you know, with that person, you know, if you, if you're interested in, let's say, in radar signal processing or satellite communications, and you've read uh, this person's resume or like paper research paper, or you've met him in a conference, and you can always, uh, you know, show your interest. Hey, you know, I'm more interested in this part of your paper. You know, I was wondering, like, you know, how did you handle this, you know, conclusion or you know this part of your analytical paper? So it's always good to, you know, open up a uh, related discussions. You don't want to show yourself like, you know, sometimes even needy or like you don't want to be like kind of aggressive. Hey, you know, like I'm looking for a job, you know, things like that. So I know like LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn has been very successful for a lot of my friends. A lot of my friends, uh, they got their industry or company jobs through LinkedIn, especially internal references. And of course, there's, uh, there's so many other electronic um, online infrastructure like Zip, zip recruiters or uh, you name it, like Indeed or Glassdoor, you know, USA Jobs. I don't necessarily recommend that, you know, to you guys because it's somehow it's going to be a waste of time because I'm sure as a lot of you know, a lot of these, you know, um, posted jobs, you know, you know, if you just do a Google search, a lot of these posted jobs, they don't really exist. Like, you know, like what I mean by they don't really exist because, you know, some, they already have, you know, someone else's in mind someone is already ready for the position. They interviewed him, and, but they have to basically uh, publicize it, you know, because of the, uh, you know, labor regulations. So a lot of these positions are already taken. So you might just want to, you know, kind of uh, waste your time. I'm not saying it's impossible, but the odds of someone finding a job through like, just like, you know, online application or submission and, you know, just say, hey, I'll cross my finger in the name of Jesus, you know, <laughs> this is going to be almost like, nearly impossible but it's you know it's not quite impossible you know maybe you have to apply like 1000 positions every day and imagine if you want to change your resume that's going to be like you know a burden it's going to be really hard if you have to update your resume change the keyword it's going to take a lot of time so again it's always best to enhance your you know 
connection and you know your uh, network. So and try to socialize with people. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. That's very good. Uh, really appreciate. It. So we'll come back. So then, then we uh, go back to the order of today's uh, presentation. So uh, uh, Phil, oh, sorry, disturb you. Uh, could you make some comment? For for example, uh, like uh, your company or something. You know how they handle this and uh, how. Uh, you a long time with North Groman, you know, so it's uh, the hiring, you know, the COVID, uh, how to keep employees safe and any advice for the young people, you know, for efficiently looking jobs through the diff difficult time. You're talking you about some limited advice. Mr. Uh, Bar Bar Mr. Barnes, yeah. we'll take a bill. It will come back to you. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Bill, we sound alike. Phil and Bill is very close together. Right. We, have, we look alike, too, except I got a little more hair than you do. Okay. There was a time in the past when I had some hair like you. <laughs> okay. Uh, I do have a little bit of advice for the students. Uh, the, uh, if I recall, uh, several times throughout my career, and I have just recently retired from Northrop Grumman after 40 years, uh, but uh, I remember several times when I received a, an assignment, I didn't think I could do it. And uh, uh, what I would advise the students to do is to, uh, to take a positive approach and and I think that you might be able to actually break through it and get that, do it. So don't give any indication to your boss that you, you doubt your ability to carry out that uh, successfully, the, the assignment. Give yourself, and my specific example was uh, electric motors and, and uh, a generator uh, operation. Uh, that was a task that was given to me 30 years ago. And I didn't think that I would be able to do that. And uh, ultimately became a key part of my presentation that you saw today. Uh, another thing was that the company, Northrop Grumman, uh, offered a master's and after hours master's degree program to get a, a master's degree in aerospace engineering. And that's the best thing that I ever did for, for my career there. And it ultimately led to the, the, uh, the preparing of writing a lot of technical papers and uh, the independent research that I showed uh, today. Uh, in fact, uh, my presentation today was entitled, entirely research done at, done at home. Uh, and so uh, in that case, you, when you present a technical paper, you do not associate yourself with, the, with your employer. You're, you associate yourself with, with some small company or whatever. Uh, I have written a mix of papers in affiliation with Northrop Grumman and other papers that were not related to, to my work. Um, collaboration. Uh, I did have collaborated and provided some mentorship to, uh, to engineering teams doing their capstone projects. And in many, many cases, the collaboration, the results of that collaboration fed into my uh, technical papers. So it was a, it was a bi-directional learning between mentor and, and, and students. Okay, excellent, very good. I really appreciate Phil, this is uh, fantastic. Yeah, sorry to mention your other affiliation, you know, I, I do understand, but this is for the career panel. So during your talk, we didn't emphasize it, understand. So appreciate it. Uh, so the, the next will be uh, uh, Dr. Melamed. How do you think? You know, aerospace is doing wonderfully. I think the aerospace, as you said, they're hiring. And how about the COVID-19? So is there any way to efficiently apply jobs through aerospace and uh, kind of or, you know, the uh, prevention, uh, you know, precaution for working safely, you know, with aerospace corporation, those things? Uh, yeah, uh, we've been affected. Uh significantly by COVID. Uh, I haven't been to my office in a year now. Uh, been working from home on my computer. Uh, those that uh, need uh, 
to be hands-on with equipment or other things, to have permissions to, uh, um, you know, come to work in person, but it has to be permitted with all of the precautions and everything else. And it's much more complicated. So uh, <clears throat> we are currently in hybrid mode where most people telework and it's quite successful with um, a large variety of collaboration tools like the one we are doing now. That's pretty much the kind of environment that we function most of the people at our space. Uh, there are talks about going back to the office. I think it's probably uh, many months away uh, waiting to see how the vaccine, vaccines are going to affect uh, you know, the risks. Uh, at some point, it will have to come back. Uh, there were uh, surveys that were circled around and sounds like most people kind of like the hybrid mode where they're combined teleworking with some uh, in-person time at the office. People do need social interaction. They need to talk to people in person, it sounds like that this is something which is uh, needed. So it looks like at some point when the situation will allow, people will start to come back to the office at least for part of the time. And uh, for me, definitely, that's going to be the reference to kind of have a hybrid mode of operation where I will work from home when possible and uh, go to the office, you know, part of the time. Uh, let me, if I can share the screen one more time here, uh, Ken. Uh, oh, you should be able to do it. Okay, so let me go to screen two here and share this. Um, so can you see my screen? No. No, not yet, yes, no? I can see it now. Okay. Yeah, we can uh, see it now. Okay, can you see like the aerospace career page? It says take your place in a space. Okay, good. Um, so what I'm going to describe here essentially is applicable to every company really. And I found it quite useful for some of the people who are looking for jobs. So every company will have a career page, you know, uh, on its website, I kind of looked at uh, they have one here similar to ours. I didn't explore it really, but if you're interested in the kind of thing that they do, JPL or any other, the other companies that were mentioned here, every company will have a similar page. And what I typically suggest to people who are interested is go down here and see what's available in those categories. In, for the aerospace, as I mentioned, there are several categories here. And you can pick uh, some of those subcategories to focus on. If you're an experienced professional, you might pick that. If you're students or recent graduates, which sounds most of you are, that are looking for a job, you can go here. And it will tell you what are the possibilities in terms of summer interns and so on and so forth. And at some point here, there's going to be uh, explore student and recent graduate jobs. These are open requisitions, which are up to date. They change probably several times a week or every week or two with new opened and others closed. 
And my suggestion is to go and visit the career page for the company you are interested in and just see if any of these might appeal to you in terms of area of interest um, and just click on it and, and see what they are asking. And uh, you might even be able to target your resume to the kind of functions they are looking for, right? They're looking for certain things and some of those keywords uh, you can insert into your resume to increase the chance they'll be picked up by, you know, the recruiters. So I found that this was useful for some of the uh, people who are looking for jobs. Uh, it's good to have a targeted resume. It's difficult to change it from job to job, but every company you can create a targeted resume for the company and add as many keywords that will increase the likelihood of a good fit with a job that you're seeking. Um, I think if you go to the career page and look at experience, they have a lot more openings. Uh, let's see. I think uh, you can look at the different culture types of uh, uh, information, benefits, and so on and so forth, and see if that's a place you would like to work for. Um, and just explore all of the uh, open uh, requisitions that exist at any point in time and try to target your resume. There is 245 results right now that are open. Uh, maybe they are not a good fit for you in terms of your experience, but there were a couple of dozen with that were looking for recent graduates. I think that's an opportunity to try to target this. And again, other companies will have their own environments. Here's Rochetrochidine. They have different areas here, students, uh, and so on and so forth. So you can explore these. I think it's very helpful to do that. That's my advice to uh, prospective students. Excellent. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's exactly what a uh, student needed uh, to be tailor their resume with the keywords for the dream job they want and for a specific company culture. Okay, so uh, that, uh, so Bill, how do you think? Uh, any advice you can give? You are very experienced in the in these things. Can you get the screen back? I'm, I'm not showing. Yep, there oh. I am, okay. Um, yeah, short and sweet at Rocketdyne, and I talked to a few people since the uh, pandemic uh, has hit. Um, all the engineers went home, like just like Dr. Malmud said, uh, they can, if you can work from home, uh, you were asked to go home, um, but they kept the shop open, and uh, mainly because uh, there were NASA contracts involved, and they got a waiver for the restrictions. But also, if you've been in a big shop like Jot may have been in, um, social distancing is is already done there. The, there's big CNC machines that are stationed uh, in various places for a manufacturing process are absolutely more than six feet apart. And so all you need to do to get it, uh, to keep going is to have your uh, folks wear masks. I believe they wore masks during the operations, but uh, they were able to without, with a minimum of, uh, of impact. Um, so I had that and I also have a, a question for Dr. Leone. Um, and um, maybe this is worth the uh, sharing with students. Um, uh, do you think that the pandemic 
has turned an A plus student into an A minus or B plus student. The malaise that is described as the effect of not being able to do anything, or are you, or is that classified information? Are you allowed to say that? I want a quantitative answer. A minus goes to B plus, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, shoot, yeah. I, I yield the rest of my time to Dr. Leon. <laughs> well, interesting question, but um, and I'm sure Sina would say the same thing. It really depends on the students. Some students. Um, you know, became very depressed and frustrated and really struggled. Um, and so one of the things LMU did was they allowed students to transition some, well, and as many classes as they wanted to, to credit, no credit, so that that, you know, the particular first semester and then probably the second semester wouldn't uh, kill their GPA. Um, some students thrive because they're kind of hermits anyway, and they love the isolation time. And so there is obviously not one answer. Um, and then you have students who just figure it out um, and use the resources. So I think, you know, a lot of faculty members are very open to, well, having virtual office hours where students can just drop in or doing one-on-one -on -one sessions. Um, so everybody's different, but online learning is not for everybody. And so some students definitely struggled and, um, you know, and even if they got an A in the class, they might have just hated it. And so it was, you know, just very frustrating. So anyway, sorry, I don't have any quantitative numbers, but, um, but everybody's learning to manage their way through. Yeah, I get that from high school students, too. I talked to about this. Some of them doesn't even matter. I mean, yeah, keep doing it. Yeah. You know, I think it depends on how, how totally integrated they are into the electronic society. You know, if you're just using it just because or if you're really involved with it every day and uh, it becomes second nature to you. And that's the way kids that are seven years old are still uh, doing stuff on their computers and uh, not, not, it's not phasing them much. Some, you know, like say, Yeah, again, I, a lot of middle school, high schoolers are having a lot of trouble. Um, and I know that more from colleagues with kids than from you know, my, my own kids. I've got grandkids and grown kids and nothing in between. But, um, if, if I may add one, if I may add a uh, you know, piece of information actually from my wife, she's teaching at the local community college and she insists on meeting one-on-one -on -one with a lot of the students. And she says that sometimes this actually makes the difference between the student staying enrolled versus dropping out. It's really important to have a personal connection with the students and give the student an hour of your time every once in a while to encourage the student to keep being enrolled to class. Otherwise you lose them. Uh, not every student is strong enough to have the discipline to overcome those difficulties on their own. They have life situations and stuff like that and the pandemic just complicates things on them. You've got to give them some sort of a personal treatment, uh, which is easier in person but she's doing it live and she insists on seeing the student and talking to the student and encouraging them. That, that's something that seems to be working on some of the students. Yes, uh, the, the, uh, Dr. Mendel is correct. And the doc exactly we designed this uh, breakout session later on. So you can have one-on-one, uh, one one-to-one uh, one uh, one -one relation or one-to-few if you like. Um, and then the other thing is before we go to, uh, with uh, uh, Mr. Jopawa was the, if you look at our dream team today, the dream panel, if you look at this, it's very 
complete set of the aerospace. For example, Dr. Claire Leon was born, obviously a space program director, right, a leader. And uh, you have Phil, is an aircraft designer and uh, you're looking for the future electric aircraft. And the Dr. Menemis for this, uh, you know, this uh, oil mechanics, planet defense, which is very important top, uh, hot topic. And Asina, you were working on the communication, DSN, electronic avionics. And the look at Bill, rocket engine, you know, and the MMRTG. And the Jennifer, you're working on the uh, uh, legal issue, you know, with aerospace, you know, important, you know, protected. I'm here when aviator. things go bad. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen, but that's why. Um, no, don't worry, you, you are. Uh, we have an all lucky star here. Don't worry, and, and uh, you know, Mr. Bauer is the president of the material company, so we have almost everything. You know, today is a really uh, it's a dream team. So we should, uh, you know, everyone should take a great opportunity to ask questions one on one. Those things. So, uh, so Mr. Bauer, how do you think? You are the employer. You're the president. You know how. How you know do you give suggestions for you know uh, new people you know for, for working in your company or in general how to find opportunity or how to keep it safe working in your company or other manufacturing company and the one thing I actually that's why I've been talking to Rosalind is you know people are crazy about the 3D printing but your company is doing kind of uh, you know and uh, I heard you know there's some kind of new development you know you can uh, let a student know it's still very exciting you know? otherwise students are always thinking about 3D printing but there are certain things you just cannot do straight printing, you know. So they need to go to your company, which is actually very important. They didn't realize. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I went from having nothing else to add, and then you said three D printing, and now I have to limit. Just, just a comment. All right. Uh, no, because well, so on the first part of of uh, hiring and recruiting on both sides of the table right now. Everyone said the main points. I think uh, everyone needs to understand that the that applying through a website uh, is just as ineffective now as it was 10 years ago. Um, it, we spend three seconds on resumes. Um, we do look at keywords. We can tell when a keyword doesn't match the experience and it's a load. Um, no one has four year four pages worth of experience. I, I still don't have nearly four pages. I probably only have half a page from the experience now, even. Um, so that that point, I want to plus one that. The second point on LinkedIn uh, is also valid. Um, I think the only thing I want to add to that those channels of getting a job is to is two things. One is a channel, and one a mindset. The first is um, uh, Bill brought up writing papers, and Phil said this earlier. Um, that is going to those conferences, getting closer with your professors and your graduate student instructors uh, is key. That's how I got my first job out of, out of Berkeley, uh, was working on a startup with my professor and, and GSI. Um, I, I, I think that is an excellent way to get to know people, especially most folks who are in this uh, Zoom call are at large schools, uh, and not every professor is as generous as uh, Dr. Nahum's wife is. Um, so if you're able to find that one-on-one -on -one time, uh, it is a added advantage. The second thing is a mindset, um, just kind of a reminder, uh, because I know this, this panel is more talking about large projects, large companies, but, and this is individualistic, but uh, remind yourself of the position you're in, the flexibility you're in, in terms of your age, and um, what's your risk tolerance? 
keep in mind that you can take bigger, many people, I can't say this for everybody, depending on their financial situation, but many people can take bigger risks at this stage of their life, and it's okay to mess up on choosing the first job. If you could be wrong, and you'll be just fine. Uh, and I think sometimes we have to remember that um, uh, as we look at all the different options. Uh, you can't know everything about the position and the company you're getting into from the outside. And you might be surprised. And when you're in there and it's something you didn't expect, don't be discouraged. Um, you're allowed to make mistakes uh, and, and find that stuff out in the first go around. And I think if, if you can't, if you can't really find that right fit, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but think about grad school. Maybe this is the time to continue doing the education and punting on the uh, career search uh, when things open up a little bit more and you feel a little bit more comfortable making those uh, personal relationships or you need more time for those relationships. So uh, be, be creative in thinking about next steps, but don't put too much pressure on yourself. Um, you're going to be just fine. Um, in terms of internally at our company, uh, I, I'm going to reference Bill again because he nailed it, and that's nothing else to say. Our machines are far apart. We work with beryllium. I didn't mention that's a toxic material. So our environmental controls are extremely robust uh, just to keep the air pure and the temperature controlled. So as long as people are socially distant, uh, we're, we're doing just fine. And, yeah, our shop is open. I've been going to work every day. It's, we're kind of that essential workforce. Uh, if you notice, many of the large companies, the shop is still open, so we're still open. Um, it's been very difficult getting everyone up to speed on virtual communication. You just saw my, my issues just a few minutes ago. Um, but uh, I guess outside looking in at a small, applying to a small company like us, number one, if we're open, you know, um, you can be uh, you can be confident that we are taking care of our employees, and that's that's generally true. Uh, and two, if there's some hiccups in in meeting in person or virtually during the interview process, be flexible, be forgiving. Um, I'm old, and I don't I don't know how any of this works. And I think I'm speaking for a lot of people uh, in my position. So I think that's all I have to say. I, I really do think the biggest points were already said. Excellent. Thank you, Mr. Bawa. This is very crucial. Uh, I'll try important for review. Uh, so, you know, we, I think the next question, you know, everybody, if any question you're welcome to raise, but we have kind of limited time before we move into the... Uh, uh, Ken, may I, add a, may I add a point yeah, sure, to, sure. uh, to Bawa? So I was going to actually, um, I'm sure almost every university now, they're offering uh, career fur at the beginning of their either fall or uh, spring semester. So... Career fairs are another gateway to apply for jobs like, you know, in person. But uh, of, of course, now everything is uh, through Zoom meeting and online. But hopefully when the pandemic is over, this is probably one of the best and most effective because um, usually what happens in career fair, you, you know, you have a chance to, you know, to talk with the um, company, you know, team lead or, you know, the uh, recruiters in person. And usually if they like you, they're going to mark your resume. You know, and then you know you can't take it from there. You, you're going to get a call in a week or so. So, very good, Sina. So uh, that's uh, now the next is a uh, uh, kind of important, but you know uh, probably will be focused on more uh, the 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 people have you know interest in the expertise on this. So yeah, of course you know these days the um, 
kind of diversity is an important subject. And we know Dr. Leon and Jennifer as great leaders in the women professional uh, thing. And the bill has been promoting uh, trying to get as many girls, you know, women into STEM career. And all the rest, you know, these are also very supporting for minorities. So, can you kind of comment about about you know how how uh, how to encourage you know uh, if your student is a minority and uh, how to encourage them to uh, move on and uh, then overcome the challenges? Uh, Dr. Leon, you know, uh, can you kind of get some quick comments, you know, encouragement for for people, especially in those status? Well, I think. I think you just kind of have to pay attention and um, and show you care and be available for people who um, you know want to talk, uh, but also be observant. So if you see that there's issues, is make yourself available. And I really like what um, Mayhem said about his wife about you know scheduling time. Um, so I think it's taking you know it's one paying attention tuning in to what people need, being available, being empathetic, and being encouraging. Um, and then, you know, another thing as a leader, it, you know, what can, you know, what I would try to do is look for opportunities and then help steer people. And, you know, there's always human resource um, constraints. So you can't say, oh, I think this person should get this job. But you can say, I think this person should have the opportunity to interview for this job. And I, you know, I have personal experience that I might say why I think they'd be a good fit. The person has to, to earn the position themselves. So you can't, you know, you can't force a fit that isn't there, but you can help facilitate. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Credio has a, a, a great experience. He gave a, uh, a lecture last year. So welcome to answer more questions in the breakout session. Uh, Jennifer, how do you think? Well, and, and, I, and I agree. There's, I think there's two things. One, um, what I try to do, uh, and I would say this is more geared toward women, because um, I'm in a lot of uh, women's groups in aviation, because as you know, aviation is still, um, you know, it's still more men than women. Uh, so uh, I do try to steer um, them towards the organizations that uh, provide that extra support. So you're giving them support, but then you're also getting them into an organization where they're meeting people like them. Um, and, um, you know, I, I honestly, I particularly like the International Aviation Women's Association. It's, and it's a global um, organization. Uh, you're meeting people from Airbus in France to, you know, um, Boeing employees from actually the UK. It's, it, it's a very global, and it gives especially if you're from Los Angeles, which obviously is a large city, um, but you're still getting that international perspective and you're seeing women across the globe succeed. And it's really, I think it's empowering. Um, and the other thing is, I think sometimes when we get busy and things get stressful and crazy, we forget to say thank you. And people that, hey, you've done a great job. Thank you. And I think people need to hear when they've done well, you need to tell them and you need to reward them. Uh, for a job well done. And, uh, and I think that adds to their stress when they think you know, okay, but they're not sure because they've got, not gotten the positive feedback. So I, I think I, I make a concerted effort to always try to say thank you. And, um, and even within our firm, when somebody does, uh, like when a second year associate says, 
does something like wins a summary judgment motion or settles a case on her own, yeah, I I send out an email to, to our entire aviation practice and say, hey, so and so did this. Yeah, join me in congratulating her, and um, and it really changes her attitude and, and changes their attitudes and. Um, uh, and they're appreciative of that. So uh, I think that's the positive reinforcement. I, I, I can't, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, Jennifer, Dr. Leon, and actually if you look at our uh, student branch uh, earlier today, three branches, mm -hmm. three out of four branches in LALV section, the uh, chairperson, actually, actually uh, a uh, girl, you know, woman, you know, for example, UCLA, you see Alba, she was uh, representing the uh, USC RPL and the Randy, and uh, then you have, uh, you know, Cal State Long Beach, you have uh, Diana, uh, and UNLV, you have Sophia. Uh, so, but of course, they also have co-chair as gentlemen, you know, uh, but I just say it's a very encouraging sign. And actually a couple of these, they actually want to be pilot. You know, they're actually taking the bright school, you know, those things are fascinating. Yeah. And I so, actually, and I, I highly recommend, getting, especially in your, if you're in the aviation or aerospace industry, I do recommend getting your pilot's license. One, for, from a job perspective, uh, I'm in a flying club with about 50 members, and I would say about 30 out of 50 are in the aviation aerospace industry. So right there, that's your networking. Um, that, there's a network right there. And um, once, once a month, we get together for maintenance day. Not right now, not for the last year, but normally. So you have this built-in opportunity to network, network with uh, the Los Angeles uh, aerospace industry. Two, uh, it's a huge confidence builder. All of a sudden realize that Oh, I can fly a plane. And I've noticed the change. And um, I'm also on the board of the 99s, which is a women's pilot organization. I've noticed the change that that people go through, you know, when they first solo and then when they get their license. Uh, it's just, it, it's, it's a, you know, it's a fundamental change in their confidence level. It's, it's that they can kind of take on the world. So I, I think it's, it's a phenomenal opportunity. And, I highly recommend that as a companion to your aviation aerospace career. Fantastic, Jennifer. Well, the, 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 those uh, uh, people know, you know, the contact you or local people. And recently there's a news about in, uh, I think the pilot, uh, uh, Kelly Latimer, Latimer, you know, says uh, the news about her, you know, the Virgin Orbit, the launch. Okay, great, very, very good point. So uh, this time, Bill, Mr. Kelly, you know, you have been promoting in your talk for the girls, the girls how do you think about encourage minorities and uh, uh, women, girls to move, to go into aerospace, STEM? Yeah, you know, I do a whole thing about that. Uh, I do a presentation. I think Jennifer was, uh, uh, listened to that. Um, uh, let me say a few things. Um, um, my wife was, a, was an elementary school teacher for 25 years. And um, she would always tell me that you lose girls to math and science by the fourth grade. She saw it happen in front of her eyes many, many times over. They are somehow convinced by their parents or their peers or by somebody that you don't, uh, girls can't be doctors, girls can't be engineers, girls can't do things like that. Uh, I had a niece of mine who is now 40 years old when she was 10. I asked, uh, I asked her, what do you want to do when you grow up, Mary? She said, a nurse. I said, why don't you want to be a doctor or something like that? She said, girls can't be doctors. This is when she was 10 years old. So uh, I, um, uh, I have uh, 
done things in elementary school. My, my advice to all of you is start doing something about this encouragement. Don't wait until high school or college. Get down to the fourth grade. That's where it's happening. My wife was right. Because you can see a, a young girl in elementary school in the first or second grade, the girls are beating the guys like crazy. They're much smarter, much more energetic about schools. But then by the fourth grade, this, the numbers start to fade. And then by the sixth grade, they're, they're like gone. Now, maybe that doesn't happen much anymore, but that happened all through my life. So I'm sharing that experience with you guys. Um, and, the, you know, the, the punchline of my... Uh, of my presentation about this is that uh, as a society, we do not recognize women as capable in general of intellectual exceptionalism. I get that term from a paper that was uh, done by a, a, a psychologist in New York University, my alma mater. Uh, you know, if you, if you see it, it's, it's an age thing. Uh, or it's a, it's a timing thing. Um, uh, when I, uh, if you go down to UCLA and you walk through the engineering building on the floor where they show all the graduating schools, you can see that girls in the beginning of the 20th century didn't appear in, in, in the pictures, but they gradually appeared. And now it's hopefully 50-50 by, uh, by, by 2021 here. Uh, but, uh, uh, and you can tell by the number of um, uh, um, Nobel Prizes that are awarded to women versus men. Uh, my, uh, my example to women is uh, Marie Curie, who has two Nobel Prizes, one in physics, one in chemistry. And a recent uh, teacher at UCLA got a, a Nobel Prize for some, uh, I forget what the subject matter was. So uh, the facts dispute the, the notion that women are incapable of intellectual exceptionalism, but you got to start fighting about it in the fourth grade. Actually, along those lines, a number of the uh, Women in Aviation, which is another organization, uh, they do a great Girls in Aviation Day every year and uh, do it all at the local airports. And that's that's the age group. Because uh, as you said, all the research actually does point to that, that that's where they lose them. And so they do do a, um, and we do this, these are across the country and it's a Girls in Aviation Day and it's geared toward that age range. Good for you, that sounds great. Okay, if, I may so add, if I may add one more advice for my wife on that, <clears throat> sometimes it's as simple as telling them you can do it. They don't hear it from home. Yeah. Many of these people do not hear that one encouragement from home. And she has to tell them and they say, really, I can do it. It's as simple as that. A lot of those people just need to, to be told that they can do it and they will do it. My wife says that you tell them to the students and the students suddenly come back with projects and teams and uh, write her letters a few years later, how successful they became out of this one encouragement that they never heard from home. I think this is key. The other thing that I wanted to mention here is that I'd like to second and emphasize the uh, concept of failing forward. I think it was from the lady from UC, UC earlier, which is, I think, really a very nice concept. You can Google it and get tips on how to fail forward. I mean, you fail in life, that's the reality, but how to fail forward and not backward. 
I think it's something that everyone should adopt, not just when you're sick, your next job, but in life, how to fail forward. The advice I usually give at the end of this thing is um, believe in yourself, know how you think and how you process stuff, but dance like there's nobody watching because uh, <laughs> don't, lose hope, don't lose faith in yourself because you hear a negative word. Absolutely. Exactly. And always say no to naysayers. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so, uh, Sina, Phil, uh, Joy, do you have anything you would like to share or comment on this? Give some suggestion. Uh, well, on the female subject, I actually had a lot of uh, really hardworking and intellectual female students. I'm going to say, statistically speaking, I probably had like around, like, you know, usually between five to 10% female students, and they were all pretty smart, you know, even though they were not really engaged. I think they're, um, you know, they're kind of like, you know, maybe they're kind of like socially uh, embarrassed, like, you know, to, to like get engaged in like even like class discussions. Like I usually had like male students, like, you know, asking questions in the class and they had to answer, but, but they, most of my female students, they got really straight A. So no complaint. Like they're very intellectual, very intellectual, highly intellectual. Glad to hear it. Uh, so yeah, again, again, I don't have too much more to add. Um, you know, I think the, uh, everyone's right that the composition of uh, graduating classes, composition of, of winners of certain prestigious awards is, has been changing in the right direction. Uh, it's not quite 50-50 yet, but um, uh, it's, it's in the right direction. I know I can speak for our shop. Uh, and the cultural, the positive cultural change that ha has happened as we've hired more women, not, and the, what's key is hiring more women, not in the front office, but hiring more women on, on the manufacturing floor uh, has been a critical change to um, our culture on the floor. So we have 80 employees. Um, I believe we have about seven or eight uh, women, which is not very many at all. Um, but now, you know, consider consider the environment um, and the, the cultural history of, of the environment we're in. Um, so we've seen that growth in number of, of women on the floor just in the last year and a half. Um, it has changed the dynamic on the floor and the productivity on the floor um, dramatically, dramatically. Um, we have found that our, uh, the, female, the females on our workforce, either in engineering or on the floor, are significantly uh, uh, better at, at learning uh, new concepts and um, repeating that concept over and over again, which is critical in a production environment such as ours. So um, there's just, there's just no stopping um, what can happen here as long as the societal constraints are, are taken off. Um, the natural abilities uh, speak for themselves and I've seen it firsthand in our, in our company, um, even in a stodgy, you know, machine shop, greasy machine shop, such as us. Uh, okay, so Phil, um, Mr. Barnes, if anything to comment on this woman minority, or if not, there's something in general you'd like to give uh, advice to, to the uh, attendees, students. Uh, right, right here beside my computer is my favorite mathematics textbook, Mathematical Methods in the Physical Sciences, written by Mary L. Boas. Yeah, I exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I understand. Very good, very good. That's everything. 
Very good. So uh, before we move to the breakout session, if any question from the audience, please raise, but you can also ask individually when you go out to a breakout session. So just before the panel, if any, um, any of you, uh, the panelists want to say something, add more quickly, uh, please go ahead. Otherwise we'll start to assign the uh, breakout rule. Yeah, can we take a five minute break? <laughs> oh, you want to take? Uh, yeah, but, but, sure, sure. But actually the breakout room is kind of break, you know, so um, my personal feeling is, you know, we can keep moving and you want to take a break, you take a break. Okay. Yeah, because the breakout is kind of networking. So it's, it's casual, you know. Okay, so. Are you assigning to the breakout rooms or do people go no, where they want to go? So what we'll do is uh, each of you will put in the uh, uh, separate rooms and the, uh, the, the attendees are welcome to go wherever they like to go. Great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we'll start doing that. So, uh, for example, uh, um, for for you, Dr. Leo, that, that would be in your room. So we are going to assign you first. So, Dr. Uh, here. So, and uh, for Jennifer, you are going to your you are the leader of your room, and Rio, uh, this you go to this room. Uh, the student attendee might take turns, so you will see uh, what's going on. Yeah. I don't know how I get to my breakout room. How do I do that? Uh, I'm assigning now. So you, uh, I'm assigning, then we'll start open the room. So just a, a second. So okay. now is Dr. Menemed. Okay, that's you. Uh, and Phil, now is your turn. Uh, Jolt and uh, Mr. Bawa, and uh, that's it. So we are open. That's it. Okay, bye everyone. Bye. Bye. Well, you're you welcome to come back, you know, anytime. Uh, so you. anyone, you're you welcome to join the, uh, uh, you know, the session. Like for example, Diana, you can choose which one you to go, or you can, or you can tell me which one room you want to go. Um, say, Diana, do you want to go which one first? I can assign you or you can choose yourself. Yeah, okay, we can choose them and then like hop in to ask. Yeah, 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 okay, please cool. go. A benefit, right. you know, fully engage with them. So can you, okay. can you select? Yeah, you yeah, to? I can see. I'll okay. select it. Thank you. Thank Very you. good, go ahead. Ian, how do you think? Ian. Hi, um, where do I go to select my breakout room? Can you see the breakout room? Like a tab for breakout room? Yes. Um, I'm not seeing it on my end. You're not seeing it? Okay. Uh, okay. You're using cell phone or something? My laptop. Mm, that's it. Okay. So you can let me know. So for example, which one you want to talk first? Uh, then you can either, you can come back uh, and then you can text me. I mean, uh, chat and text me which one you want to go next. So for example, which one you want to go? You want to go with say uh, uh, Phil or uh, Sina or anyone? Um, let's see, uh, can we do Bill? Okay, let me assign you to Bill. Let me see Bill. Uh, sign. Yeah, so you're welcome to text me and then chat in the chat room, say you want to change to somebody else, you know, anytime. And you can, you can always come back to the Main room. Okay, you are going to build. Okay. Okay. So, 
on Prakash, uh, Mr. Prakash, can you see the uh, the uh, signing room? Uh, Vitaly, uh, Bob, Bob, do you want to talk to somebody? Oh, Alex, 